Hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing very well. You know, the number of professionals who listen to the show should not be underestimated. In fact, we had one of them call in tonight. She is a philosophy professor who wants to know how to teach young men and women who are thoroughly, hopefully not irredeemably infected with cultural Marxism, social justice warrior mania, and all other kinds of subjectivism. And we had a great role play about how that might be achieved. The second caller gives you the Freedom Main Radio listener view from the ground of the Netherlands. What is going on in the country? What is the mood? What is the level of violence? What are people thinking? And uh, insights into the upcoming elections. The third caller wanted to know, why does the price go up whenever the government gets involved in anything? And we talked about some of the basic principles, but this did transition into quite the rant about college. I've kind of been on the fence about college for the last little while, but information that I've gathered recently has put me fairly squarely on one side of the fence, and you'll hear what that is. And the fourth caller wanted to know, why or why? Are people so irrational? Why won't they listen to reason and evidence? And uh, we talked about some of the principles behind that and tried to find a way to live in the broken record zombie land of people who simply do what they did yesterday and accumulate ex post facto justifications for all of their prior prejudices. So thanks so much. Please, please, please remember to go by freedomainradio.com slash donate, donate, donate to help out the show. We really, really need your help to continue to do the great work that we do in the world. freedomainradio.com slash donate. And if you've got some shopping to do, please use the affiliate link. It costs you nothing, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. All right. Up first today, we have T. T wrote in and said, It is becoming increasingly more difficult to teach logic, reasoning, and argument evaluation in the face of feminism and cultural Marxism. As always, some students take to the study like ducks to water, while others lack interest or capacity. But the new trend is emotional reactivity when faced with any subject deemed controversial and the immediate l attack on any student who questions leftist progressive positions on any topic. There is an obvious and discouraging lack of student preparation in both reading levels and mathematic abilities, but how to engage with deeply indoctrinated students while simultaneously improving logical reasoning abilities is becoming more and more of a complex question. That's from T. Hello, T. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Steph. I'm fantastic. And yourself? I'm well. Do, do I have any thoughts on this subject? I rarely have thoughts on any other subject, so <laughs> I think it's safe to say yes. Um, is there anything you wanted to add to the question before we plunge in? No. Right. The delusions of the young are largely founded upon the foundational delusion that their elders taught them for their benefit of the young, not for the benefit of the elders, right? Until you can chip away at that certainty, I don't think there's any progress that can be made. The progress that I made, and, and, and let's remember, we measure everything by me, right? But the progress that I made came about because I began to be suspicious about the value of what I was being taught to me, for me, if that makes sense. Sure. So when I was a kid, I remember, I, I'm trying to remember, I was trying to remember today and thinking about this question, like, okay, what, what was the first thing that really made me go, <laughs> what the? 
And it had something to do with the fact that, you know, when I was a kid, the Russians were legitimately the enemy, not the imaginary enemy, but legitimately the enemy. And we kept shipping them all this free food. I can quite understand that myself. (laughs) They're the enemy. They want to kill us. Let's ship them some free food to make sure that they have enough to eat because all that, right? And there were some of these sort of questions. I remember being lectured to by a vice principal, not just me personally, but the whole school. And he has, he said he had a great gift for us. And, and you know, of course, I thought candy because <laughs> I was in like grade seven or something. And it turned out it was a thesaurus. You know, they gave us a thesaurus and um, really wanted us to expand our vocabulary. But it was all of that kind of heavy handed. Well, I'm going to give you a serious responsibility. I don't think any of you little shits are going to be able to handle it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because apparently I hate books, you know, that kind of stuff. And I also remember a friend of mine who later became an architect, would get so bored in class that he drew these little doodles like cartoons. You flip the pages and man, he got caught. And this is, this is public property. This is school property. You're not showing respect for property and so on. And I just remember thinking, how on earth could you publicly humiliate this child because of a book? Like how is a book more important than a child? And look, I'm not saying that kids should be doodling in, in school books or whatever, but there's ways to do it, ways to figure out what's going on. The same thing happened to me when I was in boarding school. I think I was seven at this time. We, we used to go through these manias in boarding school. Um, Conquerors was one where you get these chestnuts, you put strings through them and you try and fight with each other because this was a little bit before the old we. And we had, we went through one phase, which was who could make the, the best paper airplane. But paper was in short supply back in the day. And I remember I had a Guinness Book of World Records, and I tore out a page of the Guinness Book of World Records. It had old Roman coins. I wasn't that interested. And I used that to make a killer paper airplane that could go, like, for miles. And I was caught, and I was lectured again in front of the entire class, grindingly humiliated and so on, with this idea that, well, your mother worked very hard for this book, and here you are ripping it up and throwing it across the quad like you're doing it. Just this grinding down of the human spirit. And I just remember accumulating all of these over years. At some point, I just began to think, I wonder, I wonder if what I'm being taught is for my benefit or for the benefit of those in charge. And one of the clues, one of the hints that I got was I remember being in a restaurant. I was pretty young. It was before I left England, so it was definitely before 11. I was in a restaurant, and you've probably seen these, right? They give you these, like, cards to fill out, you know. Did you like your meal? Did you like your server? What was the taste, presentation of the food and all that? And my mom gave it to me to fill out. And uh, I filled it out, and I remember thinking okay, I'm 10 years old. This is the first time anyone's asked me whether I like something. (laughs) I mean, it was one of these, I remember just thinking, wow, they care whether I like it or not. And I think this is sort of one of the things that pointed me towards the free market over time. So when it comes to, you can't break indoctrination. You can only inflame curiosity, I think, and, and hopefully the curiosity is the one, is what breaks through the indoctrination. But uh, I would do, do you, do you want to try like a little role play where you play the annoying students and I play you? Okay. So it would go something like this. Uh, I would say, so, you know, you've, you've come to me as a teacher and I want to be able to teach you something new. 
Because if I'm not teaching you something new, really, what's the point of being here? So I want to teach you something new. But first of all, I need to understand how you like what you've been taught already, right? So, you know, I would sort of ask, you know, put your hands up. How many people here, like, really kind of have a good idea or really believe that they know what's going on in the world? What's right? What's wrong? What's good? What's bad? How to solve problems? Uh, what the problems are? And that kind of stuff. And I, I don't know. I mean, you teach live flesh people right there in front of you. Uh, how many people do you think would put their hands up? I would say half to a quarter, not because it was true, but just because that's typically how many I can get to respond to a question. Right, 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 because they're used to being singled out and attacked. Okay, so then I would say, have you been told what the problems are, or have you experienced the problems directly yourselves? How many people, like I would say, how many people have been told what the problems are, and and then, you know, how many people, after that, how many people have directly experience the problems for themselves. And then I would say, when it comes to the solutions, have you been told what the solutions are or have you come up with the solutions and tried them yourself? So I try I think get... that's a great, great question. Yeah, because I mean, I, I want to know people's Dunning-Kruger effect when they're young. <laughs> like, I want to know what, what level of uh, uh, certainty people have because you can't teach people stuff that they're already certain about, which I think is sort of the essence of what you are... Um, are trying to get at. So then I would say, what evidence do you have that what you've been educated about is for your benefit, is, is something that you want, is something that is valuable to you, is giving you the right tools to make the world a better place? Right. And, and you'd get some answers, you know, like if people would say, well, we wanted to uh, do all of this uh, wonderful and, and great stuff, right? Yes. Okay, so then I would sort of ask sort of the ask and answer question situation. So if you sort of pretend you're the enthusiastic student that everyone thinks is going to be the guinea pig for <laughs> Got it. attack. Um, okay, so I would say, so what's, what's the evidence that you have that the authority figures who taught you were teaching you for their benefit? Because you understand that sometimes authority figures teach you things for their own benefit, right? So if you grow up in a particular religion, then authority figures may teach you that that religion is the best and you should give money for that to that religion for particular reasons. If you grew up in communism, they would probably teach you that communism is the best system and capitalism is really bad. If you grew up in capitalism, it might be the opposite. So how do you know that you weren't taught primarily for the benefit of those in charge, but primarily taught for your benefit? That's a great question. Um, I guess some uh, understanding that the class content was standardized and just assume that they were probably wrongly assumed that they were trying to educate me to the best of their abilities. Okay. So the fact that the curriculum is standardized is pretty common throughout most societies, right? I mean, if you go to a communist country, they will teach you that communism is good. If you go to North Korea, they will teach you that short guys with big bouffant hair are the living embodiments of some eternal class-based god or something like that. Uh, if you think about going back in time, you know, the ancient Aztecs would have taught you that the ancient Aztecs was great. Playing football with someone's head is really great. And child sacrifice is really great. So, the fact that it's standardized doesn't really answer the question. How do you know, or by what standard would you judge that you've been taught for your benefit rather than the benefit of society or the rulers or people in charge? 
uh, I would say to do some evaluation based on history and past classics and using my own ability to reason. No, but if you were a a, a student in the class. If I was a student, I would be probably drooling and not have any answer whatsoever to that. Right. And now this is a very uh, important question, right? Because there are two forms of education, right? One could be termed indoctrination, where you are expected to conform to the rules of your society. And if you fail to conform to those rules, you're punished. But they're not called rules of society. They're called the good or something like that. And then there's another kind of education which teaches you to think critically and to uh, oppose um, sophistry, right? The, the, the making a bad argument appear good through emotional pressure. So, you know, I hope that people come to this class because they want to learn how to think for themselves. But the first question is, how are you thinking at the moment? So what do you think the students would say if you asked them how they knew whether they were able to think or whether they'd been indoctrinated or not? They would passionately defend their ability to think for themselves. Oh, good. Okay, good, good. So what would they – give me the speech that a, a articulate student would make for, to that case. Uh, something like, Professor, I have worked very hard and – read extensively and formulated my opinions based on my own ability to work through them with my mind and feel confident that I am right in my views and perspectives and that they aren't influenced by anyone else's propaganda or agenda. So if you say that you've read, and we'll continue the role play, so if you say that you've read for yourself, What that means is that you did not get taught this in school, but rather learned it outside of school. Is that correct? Um, Probably, yeah. With the assignments, maybe outside of school rather than direct lecture. Sure. Sure. Okay. So, you know, because I would say as a teacher or professor, because I'm dealing with students who are coming from a government school system for the most part, you put the hands up, most people would, then I have to mostly deal with what has been taught in the government schools. So forget the outside stuff that you've read. In government schools... Are you confident that you've been taught how to think critically? As an instructor myself, I I absolutely would say they have not. But I think no, no, just try being the student. Particularly because so much of the college uh, content these days is is framed around this use of the term critical thinking that actually has nothing to do with actual critical thinking. Right. So the the catchphrase has been rammed down students' throats so much and incorporated into messages and branding for every aspect of education, regardless of the discipline, that I think that students are wrongly given the sense that they're being taught critical thinking skills when what they're taught has nothing to do with logical reasoning at all. Right. It's this sort of Marxist deconstruction stuff that passes itself off as critical thought. Exactly. Right, right. Okay. Okay, so then I would say uh, the, the following. If you were running a store and you wanted to please your customers, would you ask them or would you inquire as to what they wanted in the store or what they liked in the store and at what prices they would want or like those things? Or would you just fill your store up with stuff and cross your fingers? I would ask them. You would ask them, right. So one of the ways in which you know that a store serves the needs of the customers is that it kind of asks its customers what 
they want. Now, some of this is explicit, like you might do a survey before you opened the store. You might say, you know, if you wanted to open a fish and chip shop, you might say, well, I hope there aren't 12 fish and chip stops on the same street. You might, you know, so some of it would, would be marketing ahead of time. Some of it you would do surveys perhaps ahead of time. And some of it is just basically through price. Like if nobody buys some particular product in your store, you'll probably stop carrying it. Whereas if people buy a huge amount of something else in your store, you'll probably carry more of it. So there's a conversation that goes on between the store owner and the customer designed to figure out what the customers want. And that's how you know that it's sort of a mutual service, right? The store owner is serving the needs of the customers by giving them goods and services at a price that they are willing to pay. And the customers are serving the needs of the store owner by buying stuff and um, contributing to the rent. And the, right? Now, I understand, of course, T, that <laughs> this is going to be a bunch of Marxists will jump up and say, that's not how capitalism works. It works by sucking out the spleens of Chinese workers to make your iPhone or something like that, right? But whatever analogy might work. So then the question I would have to the students is, were you ever asked how you wanted to learn? And they would say what? Never, never. They were not, right? And then the second question I would have is, is there anything that you would like to have changed about the way that you were instructed from the age of, say, 5 to 17? And that can be a very fertile discussion where they say, oh, more at more outside time, more hands-on stuff, more group stuff, like whatever it was going to be that they liked or didn't like. And there would be a pretty lively discussion about how things might uh, potentially have been improved in their education, right? Because it's just trying to get them to jump the tracks that have been set up for them by the sophists who run the government education systems. Once they can get a sense that they weren't asked, that their input was not solicited, then they can understand that the school system was not there to serve their needs primarily. And that can start to give them some, it's like a tip of the spear or a thin edge of the wedge regarding whether they can question what they were taught. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Uh, sort of um, a first taste of autonomy. A gap analysis is another way we used to refer to it in the business world, right? What's your ideal and what was serviced, right? Now, the, the, then I would ask people, how do you know, how do you know, oh, sorry, do you know how the school system originated in the West, like the government school system? They would have no idea. Right. Okay. So then I would say, do you think that the school, like how, how should a school system originate? Right. Cause there's, there's so many different ways to educate kids. Right. I mean, especially now with the internet and there's so many different ways to educate kids. And I would say, how do you think a school system, like if you were designing a school system from scratch, how would you go about doing it? Right. And, and that would be, I think, a lot of fun to have that kind of discussion. You, you know, put stuff up on the whiteboard and, you know, people's different ideas and all that kind of stuff. And I think there probably would be quite a lot of ideas, right? Agreed. Because you want to try and meet students with the stuff that's closest to their hearts. And, you know, so, so we, you'd put all this stuff on the board and say, wow, this is really cool stuff. Like, uh, I love the way you guys are coming up with all these different ideas and so on. And you could introduce like Lancashire schools, Waldorf schools, Montessori, lots of different ways of, of teaching kids and so on. And so I would say, okay, so uh, none, none of this was done, <laughs> right? None of this was done in the education system that you inherited. The education system that you inherited was actually designed by precursors to Nazi Germany. 
Uh, it was designed by the Prussian military to produce docile workers and, and soldiers. And uh, it was not designed with the input of the children. It was not designed with the input of the parents. It was designed to serve the needs of the rulers. That is a fact. Anyone can look it up. You can cross-examine me as much as you want. Uh, but that is how the school system that you inhabited was was originally developed. And then you'd have a nice long pause. <laughs> so that they could absorb that basic little tidbit. And then a cacophony once they realized what they had just heard. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So then they're like, what are you saying? We were raised by Nazis and so on. It's like, well, um, no, I'm just, I'm just giving you the historical facts of how this all came about. So were your parents consulted on how you should best be educated? And they would have to say no. Were you consulted on how you should best be educated? And the answer is no. So if it's not serving your parents' needs and it's not serving your needs, the fundamental question is whose needs is it serving? And then I would open that up to the class to answer. And what do you think they would say? The capitalists, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think they would say? White males. Oh, to serve the needs of white males? Yeah. Okay, that's a thesis. And the way that we would answer that question is we would say, if the education system is designed to serve the needs of white males, then shouldn't white males be asked what they want out of the educational system. And I would ask uh, the people in the class, how many have a white father, <laughs> right? And, you know, however many would put up, I'd say, were your fathers asked how they wanted the educational system to run? And what would they say? No, absolutely not. No, no. So, so then the thesis that it therefore is somehow designed to serve the needs of white males, it's very easy to test. Were white males asked? And of course, if white males weren't asked, then it's really not to serve the needs of white males. It must be for some other reason. It's a tough question. I think they might then try to default toward the military or the government. Some conspiracy in that area type answer would be Great. my guess. That would be fantastic because they'd be getting closer <laughs> to the truth, right? So, so the, the question then is, okay, well, whose needs does it serve? Let's say it serves the needs uh, of the government or the military industrial complex or whatever it is. And that actually would be fairly close, right, to the original Prussian model of, of soldiers and, and workers and so on. Okay, so if the school system is designed to serve, let's just say, the needs of the government, if you were the government, like put your little thin mustaches on and you're evil French top hats or whatever, if you wanted to design an educational system to serve the needs of the government, how would you do it? What would the government like you to think or not to think? How would it make it easier to rule you? And what would the content of your education be to serve the needs or powers of the government or the military industrial complex or whatever? And then let them brainstorm um, about that, right? Right. Great question. And it would have something to do with not questioning the structure of the society uh, around you. Uh, it would also have something to do with setting people against each other. And it would also have something to do with not teaching you basic logic and certainly not teaching you philosophy, but teaching you um, ideology, right? That philosophy is, a, as you know, it's, it's a methodology. It's not a conclusion. It's a, it's a methodology. Like science is a methodology, not a conclusion. And so they would want to teach you conclusions. They would not want to teach you a methodology. And so then I would ask, you know, how many people took logic or took philosophy and so on? 
and they would, very few people would put up their hands. And then you could point out that uh, philosophy has a hugely positive impact on children when it's taught. It, it moves them forward at least one grade for every couple of weeks of instruction. I've got a whole interview with a, a professor about this, teaching philosophy to kids. So you weren't, so I would then say, well, you weren't taught, you weren't taught a methodology of thinking. You were taught very specific conclusions, which takes me back to the very first question I asked you, which is this. Do you know what the problems in the world are? And are you certain that you know how to solve them? Now, if you were taught conclusions, you weren't taught how to think. And if you were taught how to think, then you would have doubt about the certainty of your answers because thinking is conditional and thinking is challenging and thinking is very, very hard to get to certainty <laughs> through critical thinking. And so the more certain you are, particularly at your age, no disrespect to youth, it's great that you guys can jump up and down so high, <laughs> but um, it's most likely that if you're confident about all the problems and all the answers or lots of problems and lots of answers, if you're confident, it's most likely that you weren't taught the process of thinking, but you would rather talk conclusions. The problem is sexism. The solution is government. The problem is racism. The solution is government. The problem is income inequality. The solution is dun, dun, dun. They all put their hands up and say government, right? And so here we come back to if the education system serves the government, then its goal would be to teach you that the government should solve problems because that way you'll keep running to the government and, uh, and give it more and more power, which is kind of what governments want to do. <laughs> governments want to have more and more uh, power. It's, it's their high score uh, in the video game called oppression. But um, so, so in, and, you know, these aren't big answers or anything. I'm just sort of trying to chip away at some of your certainties because that which you're uncertain about, you have the opportunity to learn. But here we have you know, looked at relatively briefly. Um, your 13, 12 years in a system that was inherited from a totalitarian regime, the Prussian regime, that did not ask you or your parents what you wanted or, or how you should be taught. That, you know, and I wouldn't ask them this as a personal question, but, you know, I'm sure that most of you guys know kids who, quote, misbehaved, and ended up on psychotropic medications. And uh, that's an old totalitarian technique, which is the system is perfect. Anybody who fails to positively conform to the system is mentally ill and must be drugged. This is exactly what they did in Nazi Germany. It's exactly what they did in communist uh, Russia, that they would say, well, communism is perfect. If you don't, if you're not happy in a communist country, you must be mentally ill. So we're going to you know, stuff your nose full of horse tranquilizers and ship you off to a little padded room. And so everything that you've, a lot of the ideas that you've come out of the government school seem to center around there are problems, but more government power will be the solution. And if you were to design a system that benefited government and not children, that benefited ideology and power lust rather than critical thinking and reason and evidence, then that is kind of the system that you would create. And then I would say, I have proven nothing. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't proven anything. I'm just trying to stimulate some questions because the more questions you have for me, the more value you will get out of this class. And the challenge of philosophy is philosophy 
can undo the very physics that you think is reality, right? Because philosophy will go right down to the deep core bone marrow of your belief system and will say, oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. Why did you make the case? Uh, you know, and, and philosophy is like an extreme sport. It's the ultimate danger sport. And people have been killed throughout history for asking inconvenient questions of those in power. Um, obviously, we're not going to go <laughs> that route in this class, <laughs> but we do want to have uh, that understanding of the depth and power. The more that you're willing to take even your most cherished beliefs and submit them, like have them kneel before the throne of reason and evidence, the more benefit you're going to get out of this class. But if you're certain that you know the answers and you're certain that you know the problems and you're certain that you know all the solutions, you'll get very little out of this class. Um, and in fact, I think this class will just be entirely annoying to you. <laughs> because if you're certain, you're not going to want to submit to the kind of Socratic questioning that goes on. Because, you know, the old story of Socrates was he went around ancient Athens and ancient Greece, and everyone said, oh, I know what justice is. Oh, I know what truth is. Oh, I know what virtue is. Oh, I know what piety is. And he'd say, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's find out, shall we? And he'd keep asking them questions until they basically crapped their pants and ran to the government to have him put to death. Uh, and um, without that level of extremity, the more that you're able to chip away at the foundations of what you think you know, the better off you'll be and the most value that you, you will get out of this class. And in fact, I would argue that this class, if you're willing to do that, will be the most valuable class you will ever take in your life and the most valuable time you will ever spend in your life. Because the whole point of philosophy is to take down everything you think you believe and rebuild it with a solid foundation, not of answers, but of the right way to ask questions. Saying that type of thing that, that, makes even the hard days bearable. And I, I, you make a really important point that once you lead them sort of forward, bringing it into question, otherwise you just become one more voice of indoctrination. Like they misunderstand the process and take what I'm saying as some sort of uh, unassailable truth rather than as an invitation to themselves engage in this process. Right. Right. I mean, if you were to, you know, start off, and I'm not saying you ever would, but if you were to start off to say, oh, yeah, what about this wage gap, you know, and you start to dismember it or disassemble it, um, I think that's too frontal an assault. Um, philosophy, I think, wins not by attacking the walls, but the foundations, which is the certainty that you have the answers. And I, I find generally attacking the foundations rather than the walls. If you attack the walls, they just, people strengthen them, they fight, and the defenses go up. If you attack the foundations, um, and, and give people a sense that their fortresses are not as secure as they think, then they themselves will start to look at the blueprints and the maps and, and figure out how to strengthen them. And I think that leads them to better questioning over time. Agreed. You've given me a lot of ideas to bring into class, and I'm very excited about them. I could do about a million more, but you want to try and take these for a run and then come back? Definitely. Definitely. Fantastic. Fantastic. No, I... Uh, you know, we, we all grow up with, with trust in our elders. We have to. We have to just to get through the day. But um, giving people a sense that um, some of what they, the knowledge that they have received may not be particularly, have, to, have been particularly designed for their benefit, I think is a very powerful question to ask. And, um, you know, a, as a teacher, obviously, you want people to be thirsty for what you have to offer. You don't want to be sort of cornering them and <laughs> having them fight back like uh, uh, like rats in a in a hole. Uh, and um, if you can 
give them some cracks in certainty, uh, then I think that is the best way to, to uh, you know, first day at least for sure. Uh, and, and the good thing too is that it may have the potential of doing what could be the most beneficial thing, which is to weed out the people who are just going to be dogmatic head butters for the entire semester. And it, you know, if they're like, oh, wait, we're going to question basic assumptions. Oh, forget that. That's, that's patriarchal privilege or whatever it is, right? <laughs> However, they'd staple that onto your, uh, form. But, um, it may, you know, the important thing is not to attract the best students as well, but to drive away the people who won't get it no matter what. And I think that kind of approach, it will provoke a lot of anxiety in people whose identity is so dependent on sophistry that they may not have much in reserve if you take the sophistry down and they may flee of their own accord, which I think will allow for a much more productive discussion with those who remain. Agreed. Agreed. Excellent. Um, Thanks. <laughs> Will you let us know how it goes? Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to. And again, thank you. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And uh, I wish you the very best. And what a, um, what a fantastic um, opportunity uh, kids have to be in contact with you. I mean, what a, uh, uh, what a cool opportunity. Um, I, I think I've mentioned before, you know, not to point out your gender too much, but um, one of the greatest teachers I ever had was the woman who taught me Aristotle. She was magnificent. And um, uh, so, yeah, just kids, if you're lucky, you'll get in Dr. T's class. And uh, I appreciate the call and uh, look forward to hearing what comes next. And let's move on to the next caller. Thank you, Steph. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Taco from the Netherlands. He wrote in and said, we have less than a week left before we elect who we want to lead our country. You highlighted the growing problems of immigration and crime in our country, and I'm sure you're aware of the incredibly high price we're paying for the euro currency and the European Union. But perhaps worse than all of these is our democracy is being undermined. Two referenda, first for the European Constitution in 2013, and then with the Ukraine referendum in 2016, where is 61% of the votes were against the association treaty with Ukraine, but, you know, it was, it was ratified anyway. I've never been very interested in politics until I got pushed into it by the joint coincidence of dating two feminists, simultaneously, and Gamergate unfolding at the same time. Perhaps needless to say, for some listeners, I am currently single. So to get to the point, I've become political, and it's one of the main focuses of my life right now. It's something that's hugely important to me, and the closest people are not open to me sharing that part of my life. My best friend called me a racist that didn't have enough non-white friends, and my brother gave me a threat that I should tread carefully about what I say to him in regards to politics. How do I balance my political engagement and desire to improve the direction with people that seem only interested in bread and circuses? People that are not willing to open their eyes to some of the ways in which our world is rapidly and irreversibly going in the wrong direction. That is from Taco. All right, Taco. Um, pl- please don't say irreversibly, <laughs> because I, I, I hope not. I hope not. Otherwise, I'm selling a bunch of flimflam. But I, I uh, was in a bit of an emotional mood when I wrote that. No, I, I get it, and it, it certainly does feel that way uh, sometimes. But that, to me, just redoubles my efforts to to push back. So, Taco, do you want to just take a couple of minutes and tell people what is going on in your country? What's it like on the ground there? Okay, so um, it's a little bit like 
you have in the States, for example, it's re- really like there's multiple movies playing in different people's heads. So um, this is a really weird election year for us uh, because we, ha- I mean, it's not unusual for the Netherlands to have a lot of different parties, uh, but there's a lot of new parties that are probably going to get at least some seats, which is a very kind of balkanized, divided uh, government in a way. And obviously, it means that a lot of people are feeling politically motivated to to not align to one of the existing parties, but to start their own thing. Uh, we've got um, DENK, which is basically means think. They're an immigrant party uh, led by two um, Turkish men who have a double passport and who are unable to um, say what they think about the Turkish government because either they'll lose their base or they'll lose the opinion of a lot of Dutch people, I think, if they're honest, what they think about it. Well, can't they also be prosecuted? There was a German comedian who was prosecuted for saying things about the Turkish leader, right? Yes, of course. Um, And um, we've got an anti-discrimination party now. We've got a pirate party. We've got a lot of different new parties. I'm sorry, what now? A pirate party. A pirate party. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, it sounds outlandish, but a little bit of that good old Viking blood might not be the worst thing <laughs> for the Netherlands to experience right now. Of course. Uh, Geert Wilders of the PVV, he has been kind of tanking in the polls. He's been uh, going down a lot, um, which is probably because he didn't go to debates. He didn't do, he, he canceled a lot of things that he was going to do, um, which some people say is because of the security thing. Um kind of infiltration in the security team, but he could also have sent other people. So there's a lot of people wondering if he really wants to win or not. Um, and then, uh, well, there's this, this new party, Forum for Democracy, which is really, uh, has this really energetic kind of um, uh, things going on. And you, you, you see them in debates and a whole crowd is cheering for them, even groups where you wouldn't expect them to do well because they um, I think they're tapping into a uh, a kind of new optimism um, that we we haven't seen or heard in a long time but also a lot of very um, solution driven um, ideas like very direct things things we can do right now to improve things Um, they've of course, not been invited to a lot of programs. I think they've been a little bit frozen out by the by the press on purpose. Um, whereas w- some of these other new parties get a lot of attention, like the anti-discrimination party gets a lot of attention. Oh, yeah. And just, just for those who aren't aware of how this works, all the parties that are getting a lot of positive attention are the very last people you should be voting for. That's just one of these simple equations in life. Whoever the press likes is your enemy. <laughs> it works like that, doesn't it? <laughs> like... Um, so, um, but, but the, the different thing about this new party is, is that it has some very respected people in it. Like the, the number two is a very, uh, famous, uh, lawyer who has been, who's been one of the highest profile persons supporting Geert Wilder's party, uh, prior, which is of course social suicide. I mean, you have to have a really good position to, to say that openly. Right. I mean, anybody whose reputation is not being radically smeared by the press 
is also your enemy. That's another <laughs> one of these things that uh, has become this upside down black is white world. Whoever the press is attacking is probably your greatest friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird, weird thing to watch. That's exactly it. Looking at all these debates, right? So many debates I've been watching. And in a lot of debates, that I, I, I got to give it to, to the journalists to at least say these things. They'll, they'll have a debate and then one of the journalists will say, are we looking play fighting? Like, are you staging something for us? This doesn't feel real. <laughs> in, in, in a lot of these cases, they either use really vague language so you don't know what they're talking about. Um, or they'll, they'll have a position that's so close to each other that you're like, do either one. It, like, it's almost no difference, the things you, you two are proposing. Like, why are you even dis- having a discussion about it? Um, and they're not talking about immigration, of course, or almost not talking about immigration. Uh, whereas it's one of the things that when they poll people or when they ask people in the street, it's like on top, almost on top of everyone's list. You know, sure. Like, I mean, it's it's what uh, Ann Coulter and, and myself and others knew about Donald Trump at the very beginning. Um uh, you know, more than a year and a half ago, was that if he takes on immigration, he's going to win. And it's funny how in the Netherlands, people haven't learned that lesson, that if you speak openly about some of the challenges of third world immigration, you're going to have a, a victory handed to you uh, by the people. Now, you'll have to walk through the fire of the press, of course, and you'll be called all the horrible names in the book. But, you know, it, it sure beats being drafted into Second World War, right? So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it can be handled, right? <laughs> But that's that's exactly it because um, Shared Wilders was really, uh, from my perspective, anyways, I thought he would, could easily dominate it. Uh, people th- don't necessarily accept him as a good person or or his party, uh, uh, but they know that that's what he stands for. Like, there's no doubt that that's what he stands for. Uh, so he only had to put the topic in the center of people's attention, and now we're talking about healthcare, which is of course also important, and there's also some things going on there. Um, but it, it it really feels like it's being deflected from the the main topics that people care about, um, yeah. which is of course reflected in the referendum that's ignored. You know, thirty thirty two percent of people voted, sixty two percent of those people voted against. They went uh, they went on with uh, what they wanted to do, not what the people wanted to do. Um, so that's kind of strange. That's really, um, well, it's not strange. <laughs> I mean, it's not how you would want it to go, right? It's not how it should go. Now, do you mean this is the Ukraine referendum 2016? Yes. Right. So 61% of people wanted to not have an association treaty with Ukraine, but it was ratified anyway. And what was yes. the um, what was the story on that? What was their justification for that? Well, for, first, before the, the vote took place... They, there was a lot of people being advised, and my dad is one of the people who took this advice. It's like, don't go and vote. Like, this is politicians telling people, don't go and vote. Because if we don't get enough, vote, going to get the 30%, it's the best way to stop it. And so, after the vote had taken place, they said, well, yeah, but a lot of people didn't vote. So, how can we know 
that the majority would really want because a lot of and, and and you hear this argument when you talk about it with people no but isn't there a law that says if you know like in america if you get the majority of the um electoral college you get to be president you don't get there's no backup plan called well there are some people that didn't vote and and they're like there's no isn't there a law i mean isn't there a sort of uh, legal it's, it's, standard it's a, it's, a, it's a referendum that's uh, advisory oh it's non-binding uh, it's non-binding well okay um, i mean <laughs> Okay, so it's non it's a suggestion. I, I yes. think you should not wear that hat. Well, the person can still wear the hat, right? Yeah. All right. I mean I mean you you could, but on the other hand, it it might lead to some things. Uh, I mean our our initial war for independence a lot of years ago had to do something with a petition, which is kind of like a referendum that wasn't really listened to, and it was also a non-binding one. So these things can have consequences. And imagine like 31% of people voting, 62% voted against. So that's about um, one and 1.7 million people that are probably pissed off. Good. Good. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I mean uh, it's, I it's good that it wasn't a more important <laughs> referendum, I guess. Um, so because it gives you a sense of, of where the leaders are. Now, Otako, what was it like dating these two feminists and how did that propel you into and, and are there non-feminists to date in the Netherlands who aren't from the third world? <laughs> uh, I have no idea because I my, my whole background uh, working in the arts and um, I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant father. Um, uh, from where? Uh, from Indonesia. Okay. Uh, so, so he was already part Dutch and he got a Dutch a kind of Dutch education there. Um so, um, I, I, I was very much, I, it, the, the, the SJWism and, and leftism isn't as bad at most places here yet. Like it's getting worse. You can notice it's getting worse. It's, it's coming from places like Amsterdam, Leiden. It's growing from universities, of course, and growing out from there. Um, so I can almost, um, uh, notice it like if i know someone's from a certain place i think oh there's a good chance i'll hear some of these things and then it happens you know you can kind of predict it from because where it comes from um and uh and so the uh, i i was really um in a very um had a very positive opinion of feminism um uh, never really knew much about it or anything but just just sounded like something that would be positive and good and um and I heard about polyamory, which I'm sure uh, I think you've covered it once or twice at least. Yeah, um, it's it's a helping hand to STD viruses who otherwise can't get around as much as they'd like. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Uh, and uh, and at the time, I, it, it sounded like an, uh, a very positive, um, uh, good thing. You know, more to love. That's the kind of dream you're sold when you when you when you buy into that. Like. You don't have to limit your love. There's more people to love. You can share the love. Stuff sure, like yeah, because it's all about your sexual pleasure, not about the continuation of your civilization by actually having families and children. Yeah, that, that doesn't even enter into no, of course, it. No, of course not. It's, it's about uh, um, enjoying your life and, and having a great time uh, and um, not, not having a country in the future. But, you know, the good thing is you all got some orgies in. Well, in 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 this case, uh, the the girls I was dating, um, who I uh, still have a mostly good opinion of, 
the, I mean, the, the kind of things we would talk, if we talk about the future, um, uh, we, we did imagine, you know, raising children and... Uh, In a situation of polyamory? Yeah. I mean, we, we had a... We, we had a kind of, um, they, they, like they were in a relationship first, right? The two of them. Oh, lesbians or bisexual? Yeah, bisexual. Sure. Sure. And uh, um, so, so um, uh, we, we grew a really good connection. And uh, we uh, started dating more seriously at some point. Um, and... Uh, eventually, I also st- started dating uh, her girlfriend, and we became kind of like a triangle. So you like you had threesomes with these feminists? Um, not not so much because threesomes. What do you mean are... not so much? <laughs> I think that's no, kind of but... a yes no question there. I I I I, I believe it's somewhat well, memorable. Asked, what you asked was, did you have a lot of threesomes with these girls? No, no, and I just some... said, did you have threesomes? Oh, I'm sorry, that's what I heard. I apologize. Um, no, I, yeah, I did. Uh, it, there was a lot more um, pairs of two things happening. So you, you dated. But you, you had you had the occasional threesome with these yeah. feminists who dated each other yeah. and then were sleeping with you and the three of you yes. sometimes at the same yes. time. Yeah. Yes. Sure. We, we slept in the same bed a lot more than, yeah. than we had threesome. Now, d- did you ever end up having any uh, any kids? Uh, I didn't end up having any kids. How? How surprising. How surprising. <laughs> no kids. No kids. So so you don't have quite as much to fight for when it comes to the survival of the Netherlands, right? You don't have any kids who are oh, going to be facing I've, a future I've beyond your own lusts, right? I have nephews and nieces. I mean, I mean... Yeah, but not your kids. It's not quite yeah. the same. It's not, sure. it's, not in, it's not like you're no, indifferent, I, but it's not quite the same. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so you had a lot of sex with feminists. Uh, you didn't have any kids. Uh, and then what? Um, well, and and uh, it started becoming kind of a little bit living a double life sometimes uh, in how I thought about things because at the same time Gamergate was taking place online and um, it's it didn't. I could see a lot of people that couldn't defend themselves well getting blamed for things they really hadn't done. And it was something that I just kind of got involved with. I kind of felt like um, it kind of felt like how I used to protect my little brother. Like, like um, it's, you, you you could just see something unfair taking place and wanting to do something about it. You mean the little so. brother who now thinks that you're a racist? <laughs> well, that, that, no, that, that was my friend who I was talking about. Sorry, your brother gave you a threat that you should tread carefully about what you say to him yeah. in regards to politics. I, I have to say uh, I exaggerated a little bit because I wrote it when I was em- feeling very emotional about mm-hmm. it. But uh, but there's some truth in that, so I definitely want to want to look at it. That's the brother, yeah. Right. Uh, and he has apologized by now, by it for, uh, as well, uh, as if I. So you're half Indonesian and half white, is that right? Um. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, a little bit less Indonesian because there's some Dutch ancestors on that side as well. Okay, but so you're you're somewhat Indonesian and somewhat white, but you still don't have enough non-white friends, apparently, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. we, we we met in a hip hop group, which I was the whitest guy there, probably. So right. 
Right. So, um, what is it like? Do you do you um, are there no go zones in the Netherlands? I mean, I've I've heard tell uh, of these things. Uh, uh, do you spend much time in the sort of um, migrant neighborhoods or the third world districts? Um, I like last two years. I did a. Um, educational things going to high schools so i saw a lot of different high schools and a lot of different areas in the netherlands which gave me a lot of perspective on this uh different on the differences uh and and, and it also gave me a different perspective because okay just tell me the different perspective sorry. i don't need the whole I'm backstory sorry. Sorry. for heaven's sakes just I'm sorry. I'm sorry. cut to the chase the, man the we've, we've got millions of people listening and i don't want to waste their time so just tell me no i don't, I don't, don't give me the whole backstory just tell me the differences please okay so the first year first year i went uh, I, I um, there, there's schools like in, in a place called Belmer, which is really like probably the most ghetto area of um, of the Netherlands. And you'd have um, you'd come into a class, and you'd have to rip open a pile of people that's already formed in the middle of the class on top of each other. Um, and it's not really play fighting, you know. It's not really all out fighting, but it's fighting, you know. Yeah. Um, and you'd want to go home and someone's car tires has been, have been slashed. And um, and you arrive at the school and the teacher will say, uh, don't, you know, don't make an effort. It's no use. Like, that's how I was welcomed at the school. Right. Which still uh, uh, boggles my mind. Um, I'm going to assume so, that that's a little different than when you were growing up. Yes. <laughs> um uh, and then you you go to to different areas. You go to the north of the country, and you 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 go to schools which is probably like eighty or ninety percent white. And there's so much trust in these classes. You know, not necessarily trust towards me, but trust between between them. You know, they're they're not afraid of looking like a fool as much in front of each other. They don't feel threatened by each other. Um, so it was a lot easier to teach things and do things and um, you don't feel like you have to be a police officer all the time and we, I mean some of the other classes that I mentioned first you, you have to almost take a threatening role 90% of the time because otherwise you don't make any impression on them um, which is not how you want to teach so the first year I, I uh, uh, saw all these um, things but I I was watching it with the other script. I was watching it with the other movie. So what I was seeing was, oh, these these schools are really badly organized. They don't have enough money. They don't get good teachers. You know, look at this teacher telling me that I don't, you know, it, it doesn't make it. I don't have to make an effort. How did they put this teacher here? You know, why didn't they get good teachers here? Right. Well, of course, the, the good teachers don't want to teach those kinds of students, right? Of course, but I didn't think about that the first year because that's not what, how you're taught to think about this. Uh, you're taught to think about this like um, the, whether school works or not is solely dependent on how it's given. Right. The, like, like, I mean, how could it be? I, I'm, I'm not saying what I think right, what I think myself, but that's the mindset you're in. How can it be? The, the people's fault, like the, the students' fault. How can it be their fault? They're coming to school to learn. That's the argument, right? Sure. 
Sure. And, um, you know, if the IQs were equal, then it would be a challenge nonetheless with language and cultural and religious differences and so on. But um, I haven't proven it. But if you look at the source country's IQ, you're going to understand that the IQs between these two groups are very different. And this would not be happening if you had a bunch of Japanese kids coming in. It's just the way of the world that is not talked about, but which explains so much. Yeah, it explains so much because the second year I did know about this. <laughs> yeah, because that, that way you don't blame the students either. It's not their fault. Yeah. It's not I me. Mean, you don't get I mean, mad at the students. Well, if you tried harder or you don't get mad at the teachers. Well, if you tried harder, it's like, sorry. Um, it's no, it's nobody's fault uh, except the politicians and, and now the voters if they uh, choose to continue this stuff. Yeah, because – and, and of course, almost nobody knows this. Um, that's my experience anyways. Sure. At least – yeah, um, so so that's that's how I saw. And there's definitely. And, and sorry, let me just let me just clarify something. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, thank you. But it's 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 the opposite of racist, right? N knowing the facts about human biodiversity, uh, uh, about ethnicity and IQ, or race and IQ, is the opposite of racist. Because if you suppress these facts and different ethnicities don't get along, that's when you provoke racism. Because then either people say, well, you know, these, these people from the, this particular country or this particular group, well, they're just lazy or they just don't want to work or they just don't care or they're just, you know, you give them moral condemnation, which is unfair. Or yeah. will you say, well, they're exactly the same as the people from the Netherlands and therefore the only reason that these groups are not succeeding is because the people from the Netherlands are horrible and racist, which is a racist statement if the course of the problem is not laziness on the part of certain groups or racism on the part of other groups. You're just making up answers to something which IQ disparities explains. So it is the opposite of racism to put forward this as a hypothesis, and I think a very well-reasoned-out hypothesis as to why certain groups succeed and fail within society. If you suppress this information, you provoke the most virulent racism that can be imagined. I'm going to have to think about that. I, it, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense, and I'm going to listen to it later and, and, and see if I can process that further. Uh, um, so, so, um, so then the, the, that's, the, that's the, the race part of the story, and then there's also, of course, the cultural part of the story. I mean, I have a, a sister-in-law who, who grew up in Singapore, and uh, Singapore is also a multicultural place, a small multicultural island. Is it? And it is. It is. They they have Muslims. They have um, uh, Buddhists. They have hin Hindus. I think. So they have to, uh, and and also of course different races, Chinese, Indian. Um, so they have to get these people to work together in a way. And 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 she's very positive in general about how it works there uh, one of the things they do for example is if you go to school you learn two languages you learn the language you have to learn and you learn the language of your own culture which might be chinese which might be indian hindu i'm, I'm not sure how you call the language i'm sorry uh, and there's of course a lot of different chinese anyways um but they have one problem because there's muslims and the Muslims are not, it's not, they don't uh, want to integrate in a sense. Because if, if you have a Muslim person marrying a non-Muslim, the person has to convert to Islam. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, if a person who is in Islam wants to leave, also causes a lot of problems in different ways. So that's the only culture that's not able to mix well in the system, uh, which is something that's happening in a lot of countries, of course, these days. Well, I think it was the head of uh, Turkey who said that um, don't don't integrate, right? He said to the Muslims who are moving to Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he, he advises peop- the, the Turkish people in the Netherlands to keep it, this is something I learned today, to keep a Turkish passport. So most of them have a Dutch passport and a Turkish passport. So they're going to vote in the Netherlands and they're also voting on the constitution that's being voted on right now in Turkey. And having a Turkish passport means they're they're obligated to respond to um, cold arms, for example. They're mm. still, they can still be drafted. So people living in the Netherlands can be drafted to the Turkish army. Right, which is kind of ironic if uh, the Netherlands and Turkey end up going to be at it. So, yeah, just for those who don't know, and I was surprised to hear this, the population of Singapore, uh, 77% Chinese, 14% Malay, 8% Indians, 1% Eurasians, and a sprinkling of people of other descent. So, just wanted to uh, to mention that. Yeah, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, um, so then, then there's the, the difficulty with non-integrating Muslims, and you're saying... Uh, I didn't know this, that, that uh, Erdogan is apparently telling people not to integrate, but I also already knew this because I studied a lot of things about Islam. Um, and uh, part of that study was how do they talk amongst each other? So you, I just go to a forum online, you know, just mm. to see what they, what, what do they, how do they advise each other to live? How do they advise each other to take their faith? Because if you have a discussion with someone who defends Islam, I don't think you get an honest perspective of what they tell each other how to live. Um, and then you hear people saying, like, you hear someone ask the question, or you don't hear it, I, you read it. Someone asks the question, can you be friends with someone who isn't a Muslim? And you get a lot of different responses, of course. It's an internet forum. But the general consensus is no. You cannot be a friend with someone who does not put Allah first. But it's very good if you pretend to be their friend. Mm -hmm. Because you might be able to convert them to Islam. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it it explains so much, of course, again, if you learn how something works. Um, and it's the same thing with the documentaries that they did in Copenhagen in Denmark. Like every mosque in their capital advised to journalists that pretended to be refugees, every mosque in their capital advised them not to integrate. So it's not really no surprise that the second generation is less integrated, that the third generation is again less integrated than the second one. Uh, and I mean, it's a kind of... If that path continues, it can only lead to civil war, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, people just need to study Islam. Yeah. You know, there's there's lots of great resources available on the web. You can look up Bill Warner, you can look up other people, you can just just, just study it and, and learn the facts. And um, then the behavior is not really that incomprehensible. Uh, it's not like it's a big secret. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like, um, it's, not like it's a big oh. mystery. 
they're very brazen about. Yeah, it's, it's not like you know, like there are certain groups. It's like, well, you have to, you have to pass this level of initiation to get the secret code to the. It's like, no, there's none of that. It's pretty clear. <laughs> so now we go, come back to the Dutch election that's going on right now. Right. Um. So uh, we have this problem with Islam. We have the problem with mass immigration, which is about. Um, it's hard to get accurate stats on this, of course, but it seems to be somewhere between uh, 75,000 and 125,000 a year, which is a lot of people. Yes, it is. Even if we don't let anyone else in, uh, like we, we stop 100% immigration, for example, uh, then which the EU is not going to let happen, but, you know, unless we can stop them. Um, then we're still part of the EU, which means that the 2 million people that immigrated to Germany with are getting a German passport and can get in the Netherlands without any stopping them because they have a European Union passport. Uh, I, I don't think they're all, all 2 million are going to come here because they get more money in Germany, but um, it... it, it it's a possibility, you know. You don't know what developments are going to take place. Well, I mean, it's uh, in Holland, fifty to seventy percent of former Muslim asylum seekers live permanently on welfare. Yes, I mean it's permanent, and 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 welfare means you don't have to integrate. Yes, and I saw an interview yesterday. Uh, like, there's one of the parties that used to be the party of uh, of immigrants as well as as well as the labor laborers, and they're le- losing all their votes now because there's the immigrant party. And someone was asked on the street, "Why do you, uh, why don't you support PvdA? Why don't you support the Labour Party? Why do you support this new party?" And he said, "Well, last year Labour was in was in in power, and they they lowered the the uh, how do you, how do you call it in English? Uh, getting uh, money from the government? Uh, welfare? Yeah. yeah. So so he said last year they lowered the welfare that my dad in Morocco was getting." In Morocco, yes. The, the 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 Dutch government lowered the welfare that this guy's father was getting in Morocco. Yes. Why would he be getting welfare in Morocco? Well, I know uh, it's a it's actually a, a scam that's taking place quite a lot, especially from uh, it's organized pretty much by Moroccan people, and it's given to a lot of Romanian people. They 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 invite someone from Romania to come to the Netherlands. Uh, to to go through the whole process of be you know uh, uh, immigrating, and then once they've gone through the whole process, they they're they're entered as living somewhere. They go back to Romania, they have a bank account, and they get money. They get welfare money, and then they split it, split it from the peop- between the people who organize it and the person living in Romania, hmm. which is uh, lovely that this is taking place. Right. Uh, um, so I, I'm not someone who makes a lot of money, uh, so I don't pay a lot of taxes, but I would still like our country not to throw their money away. Uh, I think uh, that's a very stupid thing to do. And I think this is obvious that, that I'm saying it, but it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's, you get the feeling like you're living in a mad world so often. Um, So th- those are some of the things that are going on in the Netherlands. 
and this uh, then there's this new party, uh, Forum for Democracy, which is led by a um, a law philosopher who's written six books, and I think you, uh, I'm not sure if they're translated to English. I, I don't know if you read French, but uh, it's been translated to French at least. Uh, my French, my French reading, I had to learn how to read French for my master's, uh, but I'm a little rusty. But sorry, go ahead. Okay, no. Uh, he wrote a book called Ocophobia, which basically means uh, fear of the house or fear of the fear of your own culture, which I think is a very important idea to have to have this as a word, um, which is uh, you know you know how they, they use the word trans and cis. Like to to denote yeah. someone who's yeah, um, so I I, I I read a book in 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 the feminist bookstore that I went to with one, with someone who was by uh, at that point my girlfriend, and I and I read an argument for why the word cis was important, and the argument basically went uh, if you have something called trans but you don't have a word for the opposite side, then the word trans is something like that's the other, that's the othering, that's someone, something that's outside, that's something that's weird, that's something that's outside. But if you have a word for both things, then you can both kind of other the other person and it balances out. Sure. And of course we have the word Islamophobia being thrown around all the time. Like if you want to stop immigration, you're Islamophobic. Uh, even if you just say, I want to stop immigration. Oh, you know, so even in the accusation, you admit that there's a lot of, at, at the very least, you admit there's a lot of Islamic immigration taking place. Well, and I mean, if you're very sensitive to people of non-traditional sexual orientations and gender orientations, I'm not sure I see how compatible that is with sort of fundamental tenets of Islam. Well, don't you know they're victims, Stefan? Hmm. They're the biggest victims in the world. So I, I don't know how you can say anything to criticize them. I mean, I'm, well, I'm, I guess if if colonialism is bad for the West, isn't it bad for everyone? Like taking over other people's countries and and expanding your ideology. If it's really bad for the West to do it, I'm not sure how it's really great for everyone else to do it. That's a mystery that I'll probably <laughs> never quite <laughs> understand. And I mean, we we've forgotten how how. Um, well, when I say we, I don't mean you and me, but we've forgotten how powerful religion is. Oh, yeah. No, we, no, it's not just religion. We've forgotten how powerful anyone who believes in anything can be. Because what in the West do we believe in anymore? Nothing. We believe in appeasement. We believe in bowing down. We believe in not telling the truth. We believe in fear. We believe in conformity. We believe in nothing. And that's why we can't stand. We fundamentally compromised our greatest values long before the immigrant crisis, long before the migrant crisis. And the reason why the migrant crisis is happening is because we compromised and destroyed our basic values generations ago. The welfare state should never have been allowed to stand. It should never have been allowed to rise. Private charity Community charity, religious charity, Christian charity, neighborhood charity, family charity. That should have been the barrier between the unlucky poor 
and their poverty. But the idea that we're going to assign the government the power to move trillions of dollars around from one end of the economy to the other, and it's not going to be used to buy votes, and it's not going to be used to excuse people from their own bad decisions, uh, and it's not going to cause the disintegration of the traditional family system to the point where, you know, you're making hula hoops out of two feminists and banging them six waves from Sunday on a seamy bed. So the wages of sin is death. This is not a migrant crisis. It's not a migrant crisis. It's an immorality crisis. It's a self-betrayal crisis. The migrant crisis and the associating demographic and cultural challenges does not result from a failure of enforcing borders. It does not result from a failure of allowing too much immigration. It results from the welfare state. If I spill a whole bunch of honey on the ground, it's the honey that brings the bears, (laughs) not the bears' fault. And so there is a great opportunity in the West to examine the roots of this crisis and say, where did we go so wrong that we have ended up in this situation? Now, the great temptation, and I understand it, and and I may even accept it in the short run, the great temptation is, okay, close the borders. Close the borders. Sure, that buys us perhaps a little time, perhaps 10 years, perhaps. But what do we do in those 10 years? Do we just sit there and say, we've solved the problem, now let's get back to spinning our way around various vaginas. No. No, no, no. You buy a little time, and what do you do? You figure out what went wrong at the base of things to the point where the entire history of the civilization may be threatened. And it's not immigration. Immigration is a symptom. The problem is the violation of property rights, the violation of personhood, the violation of integrity that allowed us to slither down the slippery, slidey pathway towards socialism that starts with the welfare state. Just imagine, I was just talking about this today. Just imagine. Let me take you back on a journey. I actually, I sent this book proposal out decades ago. I was 25, I think I was. So it's a, it's a quarter century ago I sent this book proposal around saying, we need to deal with the welfare state. I sent it to publishers, and of course, nobody was interested. Nobody cared. It didn't matter. I mean, it was crazy. And my friends were like, oh, it's mad. Who cares? It just helps some people. Do you want them to starve in the streets? Right. Now, imagine in, in, in some alternate universe, 25 years ago, publishers had accepted this book. I had an outline, a whole thing. Publishers had accepted this book against the welfare state. And let's say that some orderly transition away from the welfare state towards private charity had been organized. Well, the reversal of the decay of the family would have occurred, right? That, that, that would have reversed. The decay of the family and the, the restitution of the family to its stable center of society would have occurred. The national debt, national deficits, it's the welfare state. Now, in America, it's somewhat also the military-industrial complex. But for most of the West... The debt and the deficit is the welfare state. And therefore, we would have paid off most of the national debt. 
families would be stronger, charity would be stronger, more people would be actually helped rather than locked into these horrible migrant-attracting dungeons of permanent underclasses within society. Imagine, where would the migrants go if there was no welfare state? They would not come to Europe. They would not be coming to Europe. If there was no welfare state, you would not have all of these dysfunctional people who've made terrible decisions because there's a welfare state and are now surviving in that welfare state as a result of those bad decisions and enabling themselves to make more of those bad decisions. You wouldn't have created this giant, massive horde of people desperate to vote for more and more and more and more and more government all the time. You would have a society that respected property rights. You would have a moral society. You know, people say, well, why has Europe lost pride in its history? Because Europe sucks and has for generations. Europe is like a dead body washed up on the shore of history. And everyone says, well, why isn't he putting on any sunscreen? Because he's dead. Europe betrayed all of the precious liberties carved out of the height of humanity and the carrion feasted body of history. Europe betrayed those values generations ago by creating this syrupy, trapping the poor like prehistoric flies in amber welfare state. The massive, forced, immoral, evil violation of property rights that is undermining and destroying society. It's not the politicians. It's not the politicians. It's the voters. And the voters have been bribed. And the voters have become sentimental. And the voters have been backed into a corner where it's the welfare state or general starvation, they believe, and have accepted this false dichotomy. You know, um, Ingrid Kalkvist was uh, on this show. And I like Ingrid a lot. She was talking about how great Sweden was in the 70s. <laughs> you could do anything. Everything was wonderful. Everything was great. Sure. Sure. Of course it was. Fucking boomers. Of course it was. Because if you borrow like crazy, you don't have to work. But then what happens is your kids end up inheriting the debt. Europe betrayed itself generations ago. This is the outcome of the self-betrayal of Europe. And Europe had the example of the late Roman Empire. Bread and circuses, entertainment provided by the state, and welfare. And multiculturalism. But multiculturalism has a lot to do with the welfare state. Why did you need a welfare state before you had multiculturalism? Because multiculturalism is financially not effective, not efficient. So once you have the welfare state, you can pay people to come in and you can pay people to pretend that they can live peacefully side by side when all of the data and all the evidence shows that it decays social trust and all the stuff I've talked about a million times before. Everyone surrendered their conscience to the state and said, you take the money of our children 
and you take care of the poor. I don't want to get involved. It's messy. They're smelly. Sometimes they have bad breath. They have halitosis. I don't know what they eat, where they sleep, what happens. I don't want to get involved. Let the state take care of it. I don't feel like getting up early and go to church. I don't feel like getting to know my neighbors. I don't, I'm going to sit home with my TV dinner, stuff my face, get fat, and watch the boob tube till my eyes dribble down my cheeks. And this laziness, this deference, of course, to what women want. Women will choose, in general, security over liberty. And nobody pushed back. Oh, well, we got to please the ladies. <laughs> right. Yeah, because they're really going to be pleased at the future of Europe. I'm sure of that. So it just frustrates me. If people had listened to Ayn Rand regarding the welfare state or to Milton Friedman, if people had listened, if people had accepted the arguments, which were very clear and very well validated, morally, economically, empirically, if people had listened in the past, the welfare state would not have come into being as a fundamental violation of every precept, of every principle, of every goal that the West and all moral societies had bended themselves towards, which is not just a man's home is his castle, but a man's wallet is his castle. Keep your robot statist hands out of my goddamn wallet. Let me help people as I see fit. Because I have a private incentive for people to get better when my money is spent. All you assholes do is wallpaper people's houses, their tin shacks, their mobile homes with money to buy their votes and trap them in dependence upon these mechanical, slowly dying, blood-soaked state robot udders of fiat currency. So Europe betrayed itself generations ago. Europe decided to go for the cheap and easy out. Europe decided to go for the redistribution to satisfy the ladies' welfare state. Sweden, 800 years. 800 years, no welfare state. A few years after women get the vote, welfare state! Why didn't people push back? Why didn't they stand up and say, ladies, you're kind of new to this. Let me explain to you how it works. Let me explain to you why we don't want this. And people didn't push back. They didn't fight back. And... Why didn't they know? We we were... Well, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I can only tell you about what I've known, which is that I've been talking about the evils of the welfare state for 34 years. 34 years. And everyone says, Steph, you're crazy. You're just a nasty guy. You just want people to suffer. He's like, yeah, how are they going to do over the next little while, everyone? Oh, you see, you you want the heroin addict to get less heroin and eventually no heroin? You just want him to suffer? Well, what are the alternatives? We're seeing what the alternatives are. That if you create this giant prize of welfare, you know, in Sweden, the a family, a migrant family on welfare gets over $3,200 US a month. How much do you think they're getting in the Middle East? You can't blame them. Of course not. I mean, if I could go someplace and I could get 10 times the income for not working. I, I mean, I mean, can't you completely not blame people for, for taking money for free? But it's not free. Well, it's free for them. That's the point. And no, no, I'm not talking about the migrants. I'm talking about okay. the Europeans. Oh, okay. Everybody knew it was a sleazy deal with a syrupy devil to give the government this kind of power. 
Everyone surrendered their money to the government, their health to the government, their incomes to the government, their children to the government. Yeah, let's give kids to the state to raise them. Because Lord knows the state has been just such a wonderful entity all throughout European history and around the world. Hey, you remember that government that started the First World War, which killed 10 million people and 20 million people more when the Spanish flu hit at the end of 30 million people? All these European governments started all these wars that killed 30 million people. Hey, how about the Second World War? Ooh, we got an extra 10, 40 million people. How about 100 million people dead through communism. Oh, you could go on and on. And it's like, hey, these homicidal maniacs at the top of the pyramids of state power, these people who wield political power like Smog wields his fiery breath. How about we give our children to these people to raise? Wouldn't that be great? How about these people who care so much about humanity that they've poured a quarter of a billion people into the wood chipper of disassembling state power in just 100 years. Let's give them the power to help the poor. Let's give them all the health care in the world. Let's give them all the charity in the world. Let's give everyone everything who's an asshole. Why? 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 For God's sakes. I can understand in the late 19th century, when Western Europe had been largely war-free for... 70 or 80 years, and it's the fall of Napoleon in 1815. Okay, but dear God alive, in the 1930s, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, after two world wars, yeah, let's give the government more power, because it only got fucking half of Europe killed in the span of half a century. Sure, let's give them the kids, let's give them everything. Because they've just proven themselves to be so wonderful and so benevolent and so helpful and so great. Send it all over. Send them the kids. Send them the money. Give them all the power to create money. Give them all the power to regulate everything. Give them all the power to make a third of the population dependent on stupid bullshit pieces of paper, government licenses so that they can draw breath and make money. Yo, let's give the government the power to redraw all the lines in the family. Let's give them the power to raise the children. You want to know why Sweden is dying? Because like 99.9% of Swedish children grew up in daycare and bonded with the state. You think they have the power, the capacity in any way, shape or form to push back against and resist the state? The state is their parent. They can't restrain the state because the state is literally their giant maternal tit. And they are as strong with the state as a baby is with its mother. You handed your children, Swedish moms, gotta face it, you handed your children over to the state to be raised. You took the 40 pieces of silver. You betrayed the Jesus of your principles. And now you claim to be shocked that all you have raised is hell on earth. So that's what I would like to learn to be able to do. What? What you're... In a sense, you're making um, all these numbers and facts and turning it into something that people can feel going on. And you can, you're, you're able to channel it in a way to, I think, awaken people to. Well, it's just that we, we Europe can be saved, but we got to go back to principles. The West has to go back to basic principles. Private property, security, privacy, independence, and, and skepticism, I... excuse me, 
and skepticism of state power. We have to shrink the state. We have to control the state. We have to say to all the people dependent on the state, sorry, it's really bad. It's really bad. Uh, and it's a real shame. I'm sorry that you became dependent on the state. Um, you know, of course, that it couldn't possibly last. You know for a fact that this can't possibly last. You're going to have to find alternate arrangements. You're going to have to start contributing to your community. And you're going to have to start sharing responsibilities for childcare and so on. You'll figure it out. You're smart people. It'll all work out. But Europe has taken a seriously bad turn into socialism, and socialism leads to decay. Socialism leads to the softening of spines. And we have to stop enabling people in their bad decisions. We have to start treating them as adults. Sorry, single mom, you had a kid with an unreliable dad. You have to own that. You have to find some way to make that work. I'm sure society will help you. I'm sure people will help you out. But you got to stop pretending that you're an adult so that you can be an adult. And um, the alternative to that relatively small suffering could be the very end of the West as we know it. And so for me, Europe is dead, but Europe can come back to life, but it's got to go back and rediscover the principles that made Europe Europe in the first place. You know, John Locke didn't say, hey, you know, it'd be excellent. Let's replace the monarchy with a big giant-ass, massive-borrowing, money-printing, fiat-currency-based, wealth-transferring, Leviathan state. Wouldn't that be great? That would be just fantastic. That would be such an improvement over what we've got. No. It's like, let's not take the monarchy and replace it with a democracy. It's even worse than a monarchy. At least the monarch has to keep the kingdom solvent for his children. At least occasionally you'll get a good king. With democracy, it's always idiot greed rule. So there were rights that were supposed to be there at the center of European civilization. Inviolate rights. Inviolate rights. That was what was supposed to be right there at the center. Life, liberty, property. That was supposed to be it. It's not that complicated. It's the Holy Trinity. Life, liberty, property. That was the original part of the... uh, the American experiment, but they had to change it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to appease the slave owners. But, you know, life, liberty, property. That's all it's about. And it's not that complicated. The betrayal of all of that, the betrayal in particular of property, is going to be the end of Europe, unless it wakes the hell up, turns around, goes back, picks up those values, and reestablishes them with the improvement of doing it consistently this time, rather than piecemeal ready to crumble like it was done in the past. All right. Thanks very much for the call. I appreciate it. I'm going to move on to the next caller, though. I appreciate you calling in, though. Thank you very much. All right. Up next, we have Maddie. Maddie wrote in and said, Based on my simple observations, it appears that any time the government becomes involved in financing something, the price goes up exponentially. College and roads come to mind. Why is this? I have considered several possibilities. Governments are large and unwieldy, and it can be difficult to notice when money is misappropriated, making it a target for the unscrupulous and criminal. Government budgeting is based on how much is spent, so departments tend to have the incentive to spend above their budget just to keep their funding and have a shot at getting more. Or is it just that the government officials and bureaucrats have no incentive at all to make sure that money is used efficiently as possible since the money isn't theirs and they are unlikely to be fired or even reprimanded? For misappropriating it. That is from Maddie. 
Hey, Maddie, how you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that those are all uh, certainly uh, certainly part of it. Is there um, any particular government program that you find more disturbing than others? Mm, I would not say so. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, everything that you uh, have there uh, is uh, it makes perfect sense. And the other thing too, of course, and this is something that's sort of under um, underrepresented, is um, it's the sort of public-private partnerships, PPP, public-private. So we think of like um, how there are uh, universities, and then Lyndon Baines Johnson in the '60s signed this first sort of student loan. The, Federal government's going to start guaranteeing student loans and so on. And um, then federal government guarantees of student loans leads to a massive expansion in the student loan industry, which leads to massive enrollments in colleges, massive growth uh, in colleges. So money starts flowing in to um, colleges through that. Now, that's not direct government funding in a way, but it's indirect government uh, funding. And that has the effect of, of destroying universities, right? Because again, I've said this before, you, you don't send people to college to make them smart. Smart people used to go to college because they were smart enough to get in. Now, college has been dumbed down to the point where it's all just about, you know, chanting, this is library, right? It's just about chanting nonsense slogans and yelling at people and throwing bricks at conservative speakers and their audiences and so on. And so the amount of money that is being spent on bureaucracy in universities is going completely through the roof. It's mad. It's grown far faster than direct contact um, professors uh, have grown in in the university. So um, there is um, lots of reasons why, you know, there's there's four categories of money spending, right? Uh, And each with descending responsibilities. So the first is when you're spending your own money on things for yourself tend to be very careful. When you're spending your own money on some, uh, things for someone else, like a present, you tend to be a little less careful. When you're spending uh, other people's money on yourself, you tend to be even less careful. And when you're spending other people's money on other people, well, <laughs> there's no need for restraint. And, you know, imagine, like, you, do, you have a cell phone, right? Yes. Right. And I assume that they're fairly cautious about using data because they don't want to go over and pay the overage fees, right? Now, yeah, so, I mean, if you can imagine, right, like, I mean, if 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 everyone's cell phone became, well, it's now unlimited data, you can just use all the data you want, then people wouldn't, you know, turn their data off when they left and, and then turn their Wi-Fi on when they came home just to make sure they didn't accidentally leak, you know, a $30 worth of data by <laughs> one Google Maps lookup or something like that, right? So when things are limited, you tend to conserve them and you tend to manage them and so on. And when things are unlimited, then you tend to uh, use them um, a huge uh, amount. Uh, And so that is uh, uh, natural if things are unlimited. And if you're not, you know, especially if it was unlimited and free, you know, I mean, the Obama, uh, Obama phone plan makes a whole lot more sense once you realize that the CIA wanted to expand its spying capacity. <laughs> so it's like, sure, give them free surveillance devices. I mean, phones, sorry, phones, I meant to say phones. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of reasons uh, why uh, this government spending generally uh, goes up. Uh, what incentive do you have to reduce it, right? If you try to reduce 
spending in a particular government department, you're going to face a lot of opposition. And what is the cost benefit for that opposition? Like when I was a manager, um, I had to fire people from time to time. And um, that's because, well, I was a part owner of the company and responsible to the other employees who worked hard and wanted to keep morale up. And I wanted to make sure that the customers were satisfied and we weren't overcharging for our products, which which you do if you have a lot of deadwood floating around that you have to pay. You have to end up charging more for your products. And I mentioned morale, but morale is really important. If you've got a bunch of hard workers and there's a couple of people around just dragging down the productivity, they drag down the productivity of everyone else around them. Like it's like a bad worker is not just a bad worker. Think of like an assembly line. If there's just one guy on the assembly line who's working half speed, then you have to slow the whole assembly line down to half speed because, right? So it's a ripple effect. So um, I was on the hook. Uh, and actually, personally, I had to sign these uh, guarantees for huge amounts of money when we needed to make payroll and cash flow was a challenge. Like you may have the money coming in, but it's not there yet, right? And corporations sometimes have like 90 days to pay you, but payroll is every two weeks. So <laughs> you've got to have the money there. So I was sort of personally on the hook. So I'm willing to do the difficult thing and um, sit down with someone and say, it's not working out. Sorry, we're going to have to let you go. And here's why and, and do it in a, a way that's helpful and positive uh, and I'm doing that because I have personal stake in the matter. It matters to me. Now, if you are in a school and the school is overspending in something, I mean, what is your incentive? If you, if you cut the spending, you don't get to keep any of the money. But you sure as hell would run into a huge amount of opposition, of people who've, you know, they love their entrenched nonsense jobs of paper shuffling and surfing the internet for $75,000 a year or whatever, well, they're going to fight back like crazy against you. So why, like what rational incentive could you conceivably have for taking on that kind of fight when it doesn't benefit you at all, but just makes your life more difficult? I mean, people aren't stupid. I mean, why, why, I'm not saying you, you are or anything like that, but why would you want to get involved in that kind of conflict? Like if you're a, a, um, and some still do, God bless them and all. But, uh, you know, if you're a principal and there's an underperforming teacher, it's easier to just shuffle that teacher off to some other school than it is to fire um, the the teacher, which, you know, will take months and will be very difficult. And you'll have a lot of hearings and you have a lot of paperwork and a lot of hostility from the union and from the teacher and from all of his friends. And the teacher who you're trying to fire will try and rouse up everyone against you and make your life even more difficult. And you you know all of that stuff, right? So um, mm-hmm. there's just no incentive, right? I mean, it's uh, it doesn't make uh, it doesn't make any sense. And um, you know, it's the same thing if you know if you're on Medicare, you know, if your kid. Um, if your kid has the sniffles, sure, why not call an ambulance and go to the emergency room? It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't, you don't have to pay for it at all. And why wouldn't you get the best? You know, if, if you've got some old jalopy and, and some beautiful new stretch limo that can take you to you, your home, you know, from wherever you are, uh, and they're the same price or they're both free, why would you take the jalopy? That would be an act of self-contempt. Like, why were you going to take the limo? Without price, uh, everything becomes greed and vanity and, and overuse. So then now recently, there's been a lot of talk with uh, Bernie supporters about free college. And I assume that the price would just continue to rise anyways. Well, not for the students and if it's free, right? Obviously not for the students. Yeah, yeah. But 
for everyone paying for it, you know, if it's coming from the taxes. It's it's not going to cost less suddenly because the government is involved, but it will probably <laughs> go up in price. Well, that's not the, the greatest problem, though. That's not the greatest problem. And this just shows you that the great dangers of people either being idiots. Or then what is the greatest problem? Well, no, the, the greatest problem – so let's say that there are the Bernie supporters out there and lots of people out there is like, free college! That, that's fair. That's just. That's right. Should we have to pay for our own education? It's a human right, whatever it is. Like, sorry. Like, I'm sorry that you're either completely stupid or just so indoctrinated that you can't think about anything. Because the, the, the simple fact of the matter is this. If college becomes free, everyone will want to go. If everyone goes, college degrees become meaningless. If everyone can go, then college degrees have to be dumbed down to the stupidest people who want to go, which means that the value of a college degree will go down proportionately. It will go down to the point where college degree will be a negative, right? Because in the past, when you had to be really smart to get a college degree, then a college degree meant you're smart, you can plan, you can work hard, you can study, you can follow through, you can have a four-year plan, you can graduate, all Yeah, you'll be a great person to hire. But if college becomes free, I'll tell you what will happen. Idiots will swarm into college. No disrespect, but, you know, people who just shouldn't be in college, who should be out doing trades or other things. Perfectly wonderful, perfectly fine thing to do in society. Not everyone is college material, just like not everyone is MBA material. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, just, <laughs> just the way it is. So idiots will swarm into college. And college will then devolve from, wow, you can cut it in a really demanding discipline to what kind of idiot wastes four years of his life taking nonsense stuff that's been dumbed down by idiots and doesn't even know what a bad decision that is. College will go from a plus to a minus. College will go from something that you look, that someone has avoided it rather than that someone has taken it. Like, wow, you went to college? I mean, I've seen that curriculum. It's really, really basic. And why would you, why would you, why on earth would you want to go to college if you're not being challenged, if you're surrounded by idiots, if it's been dumbed down, if there's all this leftist indoctrination, why on earth would you bother going to college? I'll tell you this. I mean, if I was still hiring, um, I would really, really not want to um, talk to anyone who had a uh, an arts degree for sure. Like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. I, I was kind of on the fence. I've been on the fence and then, you know, I read No Campus for White Men and I read a bunch of other stuff uh, that was uh, written uh, about uh, college. And uh, I guess it's official now, folks. I guess it's official now. I am withdrawing my advocacy for all but absolutely essential college. Okay, you want to desperately be a lawyer because you love working 80 hours a week and then being unemployed. Okay, you desperately want to become a doctor because you love nothing more than either going to work for Keith, Dr. Keith Smith at the, uni- <laughs> at the uh, surgery center of Oklahoma or spending the rest of your life filling out paperwork and getting sued. So maybe there's something you need to do. You got to be an engineer. You got to go. Okay, go, go. Because you're not going to have a lot of social justice warrior stuff in there. But dear God alive, if there's the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest sliver of a possibility that you can do what you want to do without going to college and you still go to college, I'm sorry, you have made a giant, colossal, massive mistake. College, non-essential college, 
is now a black stain on your judgment, as far as I'm concerned. Do not go to an arts degree. Do not go for anything out of the very boner-hardest sciences that you absolutely need, or some piece of paper which the government won't let you practice what you want to practice unless you go there. Do not go for anything that is not empirical. Do not go for anything that is not objective. Do not go for anything that is not scientific. Don't even think about it. It's indoctrination. It's crap. It's going to cost you time, money, emotional stability. You're going to be surrounded by insane people like I just did this um, daycare generation presentation, or just really a chat. Oh my God, the people you're going to be surrounded by, they're unhinged. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Like it's, it's a lot of it's not their fault. You know, it's a daycare and bad education and so on. But, you know, the average high school student in America these days has more mental health issues than the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Like they're crazy just crazy. And you're going to be indoctrinated, especially if you're a white male, you're going to be indoctrinated to hate yourself, or you're going to just have to grit your teeth and fight. Why would you pay to be abused? Why would you bother paying to be abused for four years to come out with a degree that I think any intelligent employer is going to say, oh, really? You, what, public relations and political science? Why? <laughs> Why would you want to delay adulthood? Why wouldn't you just go out and work in the field? History? Do you not have a library? I mean, this is way back to Goodwill Hunting days, right? Like, good the the Will Hunting uh, says uh, to to this college derp head, um, you just spent a hundred thousand dollars and on an education you could have got for a dollar seventy five in late fees at your local library, um, and that's when you needed to go to a library and. Matt Damon had fewer jowls. This is, um, now you can go online, you can go to the internet, you can listen to this show, you can listen to other shows, That, uh, but the lectures are all online, just go and dig in and learn the knowledge. You don't need to go to college anymore. If you've got any brains, not only are you way smarter than the people around you, and you're just going to be like saying, uh... No, that's a pull door, not a push door. No, you turn the lid of the pickle jar counterclockwise to open. No, the bunny goes around the hole to tie your shoe and then in this way. I know, I know you grew up with Velcro. It's really, it's tricky. Um, no, you have to recharge that before you yell at it again because it can't listen to you when it's dead. Well, okay, the CIA can, but it can't. And... This is what you're going to spend. But that's not the worst part. The worst part isn't, if you've got any brains at all, how much smarter you're going to be than the people horizontally. You, If you've got any brains at all, you're going to be way smarter than your professors, your teachers. <laughs> I mean, come on. Come on. You've seen what goes, what went on with the Dangerous Faggot Tour, right? You've seen what goes on with Ben Shapiro goes to try and speak. You saw Charles Murray going to try and give a speech. And they put some female professor in a neck brace and they're pounding their asses down on Charles Murray's car. And then Charles Murray's like, well, I understand what happened. Ugh. 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 History. Hey, how would you like to study the history of how having white balls makes you evil incarnate? <laughs> Do you feel like paying $75,000 to be sold? You're evil, white man. You're evil, white man. You're evil, white man. Just put that on a loop and play it to yourself for five years as you slowly go insane. It's going to save you a whole lot of money, but you're going to kind of end up in the same place. Why? Why would you bother? Why? And why on earth, why on earth 
would you want to put yourself in a situation where to succeed, you have to conform to abuse? Why? Why? See, you don't pay to join the mafia. They pay you if you're in the mafia. Okay, you have to conform to evil, but at least you're getting paid. Why would you pay to join the mafia and then go around breaking people's kneecaps when you found that an abhorrent thing to be doing? Except in this case, it's even worse. You're paying to join the mafia and you're breaking your own fucking kneecaps. With the kind of spoons that you used to play old-timey, old McDonald head of arm, right? It's going to take a while and it's going to be painful. Maybe they'll give you a spork if you're lucky. So why would you want to bother with any of this? Because there's this illusion. Right, this robbed from the past illusion. Well, you gotta have a degree or nobody's gonna take you that seriously. Bullshit. Bullshit. If you need a degree to give you confidence, you don't have confidence. You don't have... It's like saying, well, I'll feel beautiful once I've had plastic surgery. No, you won't. You'll feel uglier because you've surrendered to the idea that you're ugly to the point where you're willing to have your face carved up by a bunch of predatory high-profit butchers because of your insecurity, you will wear the surgery scars as a monument to your insecurity and your unhappiness. Oh, I know this. I knew a woman who, oh, my nose is too big. I'm going to have a new job. (laughs) Well, she had the nose job. And what changed? Absolutely nothing. And that is where you're going to be. You're going to be in this hellhole of indoctrination and idiots surrounding you. And by the way, Should you be in possession of a penis of the albino kind, said penis may be dragged into a hearing room and you may get into some serious shit when you can't even have a lawyer present and you can't actually confront your accuser and you can't do, I don't know, any of the basics that common law has had as your privilege for many, many hundreds of years. Why? Because some crazy bunny boiler said, he raped me. Or, or, here's another one. I got another one for you. Maybe some minority gets upset at your particular perspectives. And what they do is they punch themselves in the face, Ed Norton Fight Club style, and then blame you. Because apparently just about every hate crime in the known universe is self-inflicted bullshit these days. And it's all a hoax. Just go Google uh, hate crime hoaxes and poo, scroll, 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 scroll. Forget it. Forget. Why would you want to do it? I don't care who's paying. I don't care how much time you have. I don't care how much you want to delay adolescence. My God, you understand. Going to an arts degree college these days is going to make you sick. It's going to make you indebted. It's going to paralyze you. You're going to graduate. Even if you graduate with no debt, you will be four years behind the curve of people who went out and got a job. And if you can't get a job in the field that you want, make the job in the field that you want. Do you know, at least half the people I have on this show, I have no idea what their education is, and I could care less. The only people I know who's like they have their education is that they're a professor or they got a doctor or something like that. Most people, I don't care. I don't care. What degree does Paul Joseph Watson have? I don't care. What degree does Alex Jones have other than Nostradamus, (laughs) doctor of prognostication for infinite spying? I don't know, and I don't care. Do I have a degree, uh, a PhD in philosophy? No, I don't. Good, because if I did, I'd be much more boring. I know that I have to fill that deficiency and gain credibility, so I got to work harder. I got to work harder. 
I'm telling you, employers are going to get hip to this if they're not hip to it already. You went to college? What are you, an idiot? <laughs> Why? Why? Can you not hack it in the real world? Do you just love to be surrounded by idiots? I'm sorry. I'm sorry we're not surrounded by idiots here. And so you probably won't fit in very well here. Or you get a college degree in the, um, in the arts and you get that on your resume, on someone's desk. Do you know what the average employer is going to think? Ooh, leftist social justice warrior. Ooh, we're basically going to have to build a conveyor belt from their cubicle to human resources because they're going to go and launch complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint. And they're going to cause problems and they're going to say, oh, you're being exploited by that capitalist boss bastard in the corner office. What does he do? He doesn't type. He doesn't produce any code. He doesn't make things. He doesn't make any. He barely even makes any phone calls. What's he doing in there all day? I don't know. Keeps his blinds so you can't see the reflection of his monitor on the window. Why don't any of these windows open by the fact? Oh, God, it's corruption. Class. You're going to have some commie agitator in there stirring up a whole bunch of shit in your workforce. Why? Because they went to an art college and they got indoctrinated. It's going to become a negative. And the more people they just dump and pump into college, the more negative it's going to become. Now, if... Trump does stuff that um, uh, he's talked about, which is sort of cutting this student loan guarantees from federal government and so on. If, if college is starved of the, the dumb money, like the idiot subsidy, then they'll have to start being more exclusive in who they choose to get in. And that is... Uh, that is, uh, it is a consummation devoutly to be wished for. I don't know if it's going to be enough to save college because there's this show. And, I, you know, the number of people, I'm, I, I can't even tell you. I, I couldn't even count the number of people who have written to me over the years and said, I learned more in like five podcasts from you than four years in college. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, this sluice of dumb money that they're being handed. It's like monopoly money for children. <laughs> hey, kids, feel like LARPing at being a scholar? We can help you out right now. We've got safe zones. We've got rooms with beanbags and videos of puppies playing and chocolate and Play-Doh, just in case you come across an idea that challenges your tiny-minded bigotry and something that makes you jump back. Now, for most of you, of course, particularly the female variety, when you jump back, the flab underneath your arms will take uh, probably six to eight minutes to join the rest of your body because it's sort of like fly fishing. You can come back. So you can jump back. Your skeleton will jump back through your body fat and your land whale extremities will then whiplash back into you. So it might take a little while, but then you can scoop up all this stuff. You can scoop up your belly. You can put it on a wheelbarrow. You can wheelbarrow it into a safe room where you can screech autistically about how free speech is raping and killing you and how much you want to kill people you disagree with because you're all about diversity and tolerance. And there won't be any clapping. Don't worry. If you're up there and giving a public speech, we won't startle you with any visible sounds of walrus-like applause. Jazz hands will solve all of your problems. You won't be startled. We're not going to shock you with any actual learning. What we're going to do is we're going to take all of the deep-seated paranoia and prejudice sewn into your very soulless cavity by trauma, by neglect, by un being unloved, by daycare, by physical unattractiveness, all of that stuff. We're going to take all of that and we're going to wad it up into a tight conceptual ball and then we're going to put it in your belly 
and teach you how to squeeze your butt muscles so it comes out of your belly button like a cannonball and lays waste, serious Sam style, to everything in your path. And that we'll call an education. Why? Because we've got a whole bunch of dumb money and we're going to use the dumb money to spend it on dumb people so everyone can pretend you've learned something. But all you've learned is how to make yourself even more unappealing than you were before. That was a mouthful. You yeah. played Serious Sam? I did. I did. <laughs> Only the second. Uh, but did okay. you play it? That okay. cannonball was, was pretty fun. <laughs> um, actually, you know, on the topic of college and where my question came from is I'm taking a one-unit online political science class that is a requirement for graduation. Oh, God help you. And <laughs> it's not too bad because I can do it on my own time. And it is California government. I live in California. And the first thing I noticed is it's nearly impossible to figure out where government money is going. It's hard to find out how much they spent. It's, it's hard to find out who they sent it to. And it's hard to find out what they spent that money on. And sometimes even where it came from. Did it come from this bond measure? Did it come from this tax? Which taxes that are supposed to be going to schools and bonds that are money is that supposed to be going to schools have gone up a lot recently but they're claiming our education is worse and worse than it ever was before yeah it, it, it's kind what's of a your, mess. what's your point i mean this is california right? i mean this is taken for granted right beautiful weather unholy vortex of political corruption and i've been going to i'm going to a an anomalous college that is, I think, 54% male, 46% female. Yes, it's it has, if not a majority male, and almost majority male students. Hmm. And there have also been complaints about minority and, yeah, just minority professors leaving and stuff like that. And then when Milo came to speak, the president of the college sent out an email saying that actually because of free speech, we have to let people speak. Mm -hmm. and, and they always say it with such regret. <laughs> he did. Hey, don't, did don't, don't, you know, my, my hands are tied by basic ethics. I'm, I'm, I'm real sorry, but we're going to have to let the Nazis speak. By the way, Samantha B., first of all, just personally, she's quite insane. When you see her imitating people, like she's, she's mental. But she... um. Made made fun of some guy's supposed Nazi Nazi hairdo, and uh, as it turns out, the guy's battling stage four cancer, and that's why his hair looks that way. <sighs> there was a guy that was physically attacked recently because they said he oh, he's a skinhead because he had some genetic condition that made his hair fall out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hey. it's kind of a mess. Well, listen, I mean, uh, I'll put my minor caveat in just. For the new listeners, so you know, I'm hugely influenced by female thinkers and all that, and a huge amount of respect for female intelligence. But on an average, um, women are not as smart as men. On average. And we're talking, it's not huge, but it's not inconsiderable, sort of three, four, four and a half points IQ. Um, if you test men and women early enough, like before the age of 15 and so on, then it's pretty much equivalent. But uh, what happens is, um, as men and women age, um, that which is more complex takes longer to develop, right? Which is why it takes forever for human beings to learn how to walk, but they can end up doing gymnastics. Uh, and um, female brains stop developing in their early 20s and male brains stop developing in their late 20s. And um, when you go up in IQ, it doesn't matter much in the average, but when you go up in IQ, 
um, there are just way more men than women in higher IQs. And, uh, you know, around 100, it's pretty much one to one. But when you start looking at IQs of 130 to 150, there are two and a half men for every uh, woman. And uh, it gets uh, even more extraordinary when you go higher. So when you start talking about IQs over 150, um, there are 3.7 men for every woman. When you start talking about IQs of 160, there are almost six men for every woman. And when you start getting even higher, 170 plus, there's uh, 10.4 men for every woman. And IQs over 175, there are 18 men for every woman. And over 176, you you can't find women. Uh, so <laughs> division by zero can't can't get the uh, can't get the ratio. And this, um, so, so when you're starting to talk about, you know, as we had a caller in the other day who was asking, you know, why are there so few female directors? Well, I think to be a really good director, to be a really competent director, you probably need an IQ of, you know, 160, 170, because you've got to be not just artistic and know how to tell a great story and know how to motivate actors and know how to get great performances out, but you've got to be into the finances. You've got to be a good manager. You've got to be maybe a good writer. You've got, I mean, you've, there's so many skills that have to come together to make a great director. I got to think that it's at least 170. It's my guess. I don't know if anyone's ever been tested, but okay. So if we're talking about 170, then there will be uh, 10 men for every woman just in that IQ band. Now, if you point out also that a lot of women will take time off from their careers to have babies and breastfeed and be good moms, which is a wonderful thing to do, um, then there's going to be that much fewer uh, women. And also when you factor in the fact that men have additional testosterone that makes them more aggressive and assertive and so on, then you're going to end up with more. So to me, if you know if there's 10 men for every woman uh, in IQ 170 plus, and if that's what you need, for uh, successful directing, even if we discount all the other things, then if a female director wins an Academy Award every 10 years, yep, that's about right. That's uh, exactly where it should be uh, in line with with IQ. And this is the big problem. As women, this is hard to miss, right? Like as women become 50 to 60 or more percentage of a college, the intellectual standards plummet. Why? Because, you know, there are fewer women at the higher IQ bands than there are men. And um, so when you start to get a lot more women into college, the standards have to go lower than if you had an equivalent number of men in college. Uh, and people can get upset if they want. It's very boring, but these are just um, just the facts. And it helps. You know, the reason I say this kind of stuff is not just because I enjoy everyone's <laughs> saying that I'm the sexist or whatever. The reason that I say this stuff is to help women, to, to help women understand <laughs> understand that Men are not just waking up figuring out how to oppress women and how to hold women down and how to make sure women never become directors. I mean, Christ Almighty, we've got tits to fantasize about. We don't have time for all for all of that stuff. And men are we're happy when you succeed, but we can't change the bell curve. We can't change the IQ curve, and we can't change the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant and women are the ones who, if they want to be good moms, have to breastfeed. We can't can't change that. And so if you're being told the lie that men and women intellectually are just identical, despite the fact that men's brains are like 8% larger than women's brains, even when you correct for um, body weight and, and, and size and so on, women, and men have much more um, neural connections than, than women and so on. And again, there are genius women and there are, of course, lots of idiots men. It's just, but I don't want women to sit there and think, well, you know, 
there, there should be 50-50 directors, male and female, because otherwise there's patriarchy and sexism and I hate men. It's like, no, no, it's not men's fault that nature evolved us with different mental capacities. It's it's just not my fault. It's not your fault. It's just the way things are. And And what it does when you have this kind of information, it is allows you to do something wonderful, which is to relax into the giant hammock called the truth. Relax into the giant hammock called facts. And this way, you can let go of your resentment. You can let grow. You can let go of this giant, colossus, demonic phallus hanging over the world called evil patriarchy. And you can get mad at Mother Nature. She's a chick. You can get mad at her. I'm sure she'll she'll be able to handle it. But it allows you to deal with reality. And it allows you to not be paranoid. And it allows you to fall in love with man again. And it allows you to fall in love with nature again. And it allows you to fall in love with diversity again. The diversity of abilities between men and women. Yeah, women are better at some things and men are better at some things. It's just that IQ happens to be something that particularly at the high end, men are better at. And it's nobody's fault. It's just the way things are. And it allows you to not look at all statistical disparities as evidence of some evil patriarchy, but allows you to say, wow, we're better at different things. Isn't that great? We're like jigsaw puzzles that fit together very nicely. Isn't that wonderful? It allows you to let go of this Marxist, blue-haired, tattooed-faced, feminist, blood-smearing, I've got a tampon hanging out of my ears for incomprehensible political reasons. It allows you to let go of that evil tribe of pussy-hat wearers that currently seem to be in charge in Sweden. It allows you to let go of all that frustration and that resentment. It allows you to embrace the differences. Viva la différence, as I was told when I was growing up. It allows you to embrace the differences between the genders to learn to love men again, the men who want you to do well and who want you to succeed, but can't give you the brain cells that some of you need. And just as you can't give us some of the abilities that you have, then maybe we'd be better at, like keeping lists in our head and organizing basic household functions, things like that. I'm not very good at that stuff at all. We are complementary. No man is out to get you. We'd love it if you succeeded more, but we can't siphon off parts of our brains and give them to you. So... It allows women to relax into reality, to learn to love the world again, to learn to love men again, and to stop feeling like victims because evolution. All right. Well, thanks for the question. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to move on to the next caller. Have a lovely night. Thank you. Or, yeah, night. All right. Up next, we have Richard. Richard wrote in and said, we are encouraged to think of truths as absolute and unwavering. And over the past year, we've seen the issue of, quote unquote, fake news and phrases like, quote-unquote, hate facts, reaching the mainstream. People such as yourselves often say that facts don't care about your feelings, and there is no such thing as your truth or my truth, only da-da-da-da, the truth. While I agree with this premise, there are times within the human context when we lie for the greater good. How is this reconciled? Secondly, is how people perceive you important in the context of truth. For example, calling somebody an arsehole because you don't like the facts they're presenting is definitely not an argument. But in the human context, if everyone thinks you're an arsehole, wouldn't that harm you in some way, shape, or form? Perhaps people won't engage in business transactions with you, help you in hard times, or you'll lose influence within your specific social group. That is from Richard. Mike, could you just say arsehole again? Arsehole. No, the R is very important to the British. Yeah, the R is very, very important to the British. Apparently, um, uh, uh, Mary rode to Bethlehem on an arse. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm sorry, what's your name again? It's Richard. Richard, how are you doing? I'm great, Stefan. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks. Um, do you have this conversation floating around your own personal life? 
Um, yeah, it's kind of trying to understand how we got to the place where we're at, where the same group of people will claim to be all about the facts, fact check everything, but those same groups of people will blatantly lie and believe myths. It's um, it's all it's almost like a, like a cognitive dissonance thing, you know. It's like just two opposing things going on. Is it though? Do you think? I mean, the left. They say that the end justifies the means. They say that there's no such thing as absolute truth, but they want particular things in society. I mean, if you look at the dedication of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, he dedicates it to Satan himself. And they say, we don't have any rules, but we find it very useful to hold our enemies by their own standards, right? So I don't know yeah. that they're being hypocritical if, and again, I'm not saying that all leftists subscribe to this, but I don't think they're being hypocritical if in general they say that the ends justify the means and then they manipulate facts to 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 achieve their ends. It's also to do with, like, people in general. You know, like, we're taught, you know, lying's wrong. But then there are times when you, when you do lie, for the greater good. And Can you it's, it's, okay? Let, let's let's start with that because that's an interesting question. Um, give me an example of a lie that would be for the greater good. Well, I, I've, I was trying to think of examples, and I tried to try. I tried to stay away from things that were like life and death because you know they're kind yeah, of they never happen. Right? Yeah, but let's say for example, one one I did think of was say that if you were on a passenger airplane and one of the engines failed. You know, plane was fine. It's not going to crash. But should the pilot tell the passengers or should he keep that to himself? You know, like something like that. What you, you see like in TV and movies and stuff, the, you know, a disaster happens or whatever. And the authorities decide not to tell the people, you know, because of panic or whatever. Right. You know, what, what's better? Is it better that the people are told the truth or is... No, like, I mean, certainly that's... In the, in, no, listen, in that situation... If the plane is flying fine and there's no particular danger, why would you bother telling people? I mean, they can't do anything about it, um, and they're not in any danger. It's just going to make them freak out for no good purpose. Mm. But you're not lying. Yeah. Right? Uh, withholding of information is not the same of, as lying, right? I think it depends on the intention. I think, like, whether it's malicious or, you know, whether it's for what you perceive to be a good reason. Um, well, no, the, no, the, sorry. The no, reason why hang on, hang on. There's a moral problem with lying by omission if you're expected to tell the truth and if the other person has the expectation that you're telling mm. the truth, right? Yeah, so if they believe that you would be telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if, if someone asks you something specific and you just kind of fudge and bury something, then that clearly is conscious, right? Mm. But uh, if, if let's say, like I've done this show, very, I very rarely will get a headache, right? But every now and then I'll do a show, I've got a headache. Now, I haven't, I think one time I said I have a headache. But so I don't announce it. Am I lying to the audience by not saying I have a headache? No. I mean, if I can do a good show with a headache, then I'll do a good show with a headache, but I'm not lying to someone because there's no expectation that I have to 
say every minor physical ailment I might be in possession of when I do a show. Mm. Does that make yeah. sense? In in those in those instances, yeah, that that definitely wouldn't. But let's be let's. Lying. <clears throat> Sorry, let me give you another example. Now, if I decided to do an opposite show, right? Hmm. Like, if I decided to be mean in a show or to be anti-rational in a show, but I didn't announce that as my intention before or afterwards, that I think would be lying. Because people have an expectation that I'm going to be rational in the show or you strive there too, right? But if I've suddenly decided to reverse my methodology for some reason, then I should say that, right? If, if like, let's say it was April Fool's or something like that. I mean, yeah. it's at least afterwards, I should say, right? Something, right? Um, and, and so if people have a rational expectation of consistent behavior, and then I break that consistent behavior, um, I think that is something where I should say, well, I've made a decision to do something different and blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. You know, like, like I've, I've said, I think anger is very healthy. And, um, you know, so if I get angry, I'm not breaking my rules uh, of, of behavior. But if I do something that egregiously breaks my rules of behavior, and I've made that sort of conscious choice to do so, then I think I owe it to the audience to say why I'm doing mm. what I'm doing, right? And yeah. So this aspect of things, I think, is, is sort of how you build up trust and, and this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So lying by omission, I think, uh, is is important. If, uh, uh, if it's expected or if it's something that other people have an assumption about that you're changing or violating, then I think you owe them that explanation. But none of that is occurring in the situation you talk about with the airplane where one of the engines yeah. goes down, right? There are people are expecting to have a calm flight from A to B. That can still occur. And now, of course, if they can see that the engine stopped, you probably want to say something. <laughs> but uh, if they can't, then um, you're, not, um, you're not breaking a pattern that they're in anticipation of continuing by withholding the information from them. So, so let me let me just bring it round to something um, recent and political. Um, I, I I didn't really want to bring politics into it, but you can't. I mean, maybe that's just my bias, but you can't talk you can't talk about lying and fake news without talking about leftists. Um, <laughs> they they kind of go hand in hand. Um, let Let's take the Jeff Sessions thing that happened recently, where he he met with a Russian ambassador, but when he was asked at the time during the campaign, he said he hadn't. Um, I'm going to use a counter for no, that. No, so no, no, but let, no, let's, let's, let's get the facts more clearly. Uh, Mike, do you want yeah, to jump sure. in I on mean, this? I know the facts, but yeah. Go no, hang it. on. Mike, uh, Mike studied this a little bit more. We were trying to decide whether to do uh, a show about this. Uh, Mike, if you're there, if you wanted to uh, go over this particular yeah, one. Yeah, Jeff Sessions was asked by L. Franken about continuous coordination between the Trump campaign and Trump campaign surrogates and the Russian government in some way, shape or form. And in the context of that session said, yeah, I, I haven't been involved in that for the lack of better uh, phraseology. And then later it came out that he had met the Russian ambassador in his office once, as he had many other ambassadors and also at a, a event, a heritage foundation event, I believe he was giving a speech and he came off stage and briefly greeted the Russian ambassador and a crowd of people. And uh, apparently now this is massive collusion with the Russians. So Sessions has just put in a 
think it was the other day he put in a statement amending his testimony to clarify it, but he was answering in the context of prolonged collaboration as a Trump campaign surrogate between the Russian government or the Trump campaign as a whole and the Russian government. He was answering about that and if he knew anything about that or had been involved in that, and he said no. But it did come out that he had met the Russian ambassador twice, once very briefly after his speech and once as part of his normal duties. So so the question wasn't to Jeff Sessions, have you ever met with the Russian ambassador? The question was, are you involved in ongoing collusion or collaboration with Russian officials? And the answer to that uh, is clearly no. And then, of course, the left-wing media played this whole gotcha game of, ah, you met with the Russian, but that wasn't the question. And so, yeah, the, if you want questions, and this is sort of to do with perjury and so on, if you, it is up to the job of the person who's asking the question to clarify what he or she is looking for. You can't ask a question like, uh, if, I, if I said to you, hey, Richard, are you involved uh, in a long-term relationship with such and such a lady? And you say, well, no, right? I can't then later say, well, have you ever had a meeting with her in your office? Or have you ever shook her hand after a speech? That's amending the question, Right. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's not fair after, like, to ask you, well, you are involved in a long-term, long-distance relation, or long-term relationship with this woman, and then I changed it. Well, what I actually meant was, have you ever shaken her hand? Well, that's not what I asked in the first place. So there's no perjury involved if you don't clarify your question. And it's not fair to ask a question of collusion and then change it. So as the media did to say, well, he's misrepresenting or lying because he didn't talk about these these fly-by meetings or pass-by handshakes or whatever. So uh, is, is that sort of what you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, it's great that we clarified that because I think some people might not have heard about the recent one where it's like they all met at this ball, but it was basically a hello next, you know, meeting. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the reason I raised I'm sorry, it was sorry, because- to, sorry to interrupt, but uh, if somebody said to me, have you ever had a longstanding relationship with Michael Caine? I would say no. Now, it would actually turn out that I sat next to Michael Caine in a movie theater during the premiere of one of his movies many years ago when I I was dating this woman who was uh, working at the Toronto Film Festival. And so I did a, saw a lot of films. By the way, the Sin Compassione, uh, the Spanish language version of, uh, I think it was made in Brazil, of Crime and Punishment was fantastic. I've got to watch that again at some point. But no, so I don't have a relationship with Michael Caine. However, I did sit, yeah. sit next to his giant bulk in a movie theater um watching yeah. him watch his movie uh so you know clarification no, time would come up right? unacceptable how you've had your massive collusion with michael kane from me <laughs> right. we need to have a conversation after the show oh no mike's engaging in a kane mutiny oh there's a joke for <laughs> people who know old movies anyway uh sorry richard go ahead yeah it was just that like i kind of understood that it was within context you know i think most people did you know maybe it was questionable for some but Generally, I feel that most people understood it was within the context of the whole surrogate of the campaign type. But then, yeah, the senator, she says, nobody meets Russian ambassadors in that job. I've never met Russian ambassadors in the 10 years of work there. But then we find <laughs> tweets of her tweeting, oh, yeah, I'm meeting Russian ambassador today. Um, and there's photos of her doing it. So, like, on the one hand, you've got leftists trying to claim that Jeff Sessions um deliberately lied when asked a very vague question within context of campaign and then you've got this lady popping along literally lying through her fucking teeth and nobody nobody cares except for people on the right it it seems as if and and this i'm really generalizing here but the left-wing media really seems they're at a place now where 
only relevant facts matter. So all this bullshit about fact-checking Donald Trump during the campaign oh, yeah. and fact-checking this and that, they only really fact-check when it's relevant, when when opposing facts are No, presented. but the, the left they is, the feed. The left doesn't care about facts. The left, they don't care about facts. And they openly state that. It's all about the end justifies the means. See, the way that the leftist mind works, if I can use the word very loosely, is something like this. Jeff Sessions is Hitler. Now, whatever we have to do or say to keep Jeff Sessions from becoming Attorney General, or if we fail in that mission to prevent him from becoming Attorney General, everything that we can do or say to undermine his authority as Attorney General is perfectly justified. Why? Because Jeff Sessions is Hitler, right? So once you have these hysterical, maniacal exaggerations of the imaginary immorality of your enemy, then the end justifies the means. And this is, you know, if if you could, it's the old, if you could kill Hitler question, right? Um, before Hitler, be, you know, this is standard sort of narrative, the question that, that people have. Well, mm. if, if you've defined someone as literally Hitler, does a white lie matter in terms of keeping Hitler from achieving his nefarious goals of whatever they imagine the Republicans are about to do, namely enforce the law? So the, the left has, has made it very clear in their massive exaggerations and extrapolations of the imaginary evils of the Republicans that they will stop at nothing because they're in a fight to save the last shreds of civilization from the encroaching Nazi hordes of Republicanism, right? Mm. So the moment that they start talking about the basket of deplorables, the racist, sexist, Islamophobic, homophobic, blah, blah, well, these people are just like the leftist projection is that the right is irredeemably evil. And who cares about niceties when it comes to defeating irredeemable evil, right? I mean, they've, in the very exaggeration of this imaginary immorality, they have clearly signaled that they have no intention of respecting uh, truth. Um, so the, le the left would look at her and say, well, given that Jeff Sessions is so evil, Yes, it was worth trying a lie to discredit him. Yeah, it was worth it. I Okay, so you lied, but he's irredeemably evil. So, so, you know, your lie versus his irredeemable evil is like trying to find a sunspot on the sun with your bare eyes, right? Yeah. It, it's baffling, to be honest, Steph. No, um, no, I'm explaining it. What's baffling? Why is it baffling? <laughs> no, it's just baffling that, that people still behave. Can I, can I read something? I, I was looking before. Um, I was on Scientific American. And I was looking at an article they wrote that says why people fly from facts. And they, they had a really interesting, really interesting study that they did. It's very brief. Um, they basically sat down. It says 174 American participants. And for one group, they said that um, same-sex marriage, there's scientific facts that say same-sex marriage is equal to or better than um, opposite-sex marriage, you know, for raising children. Right, uh, and they told the other group that it's actually um, it's actually bad for you know same sex marriage, child raising is actually negative compared to the opposite. And what they found was that people who believed in same sex marriage raising couples that were told that it's scientifically proven to be detrimental, they made it a moral argument and said, well, it's not about facts; it's about morals. Mm -hmm. And the group and the group that said 
that was told, oh, factually, scientifically, it's actually better for them. Those people said, yeah, obviously, it's not about morals. It's about facts. Sure. And it's the same. It's the same thing when it's almost like the facts don't even matter because they've already made up their mind. Oh, yeah, we've got a whole presentation called uh, The Death of Reason about all of this. Um, here's an interesting little little tidbit, right? So the, 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 the Democrats, you see, they're, they're so concerned about foreign influences over election that, of course, Hillary Clinton's happy to take uh, tens of millions of dollars from the Saudis because, and, and to hand over a quarter of America's uranium production to the Russians because they're so concerned about Russia and foreign influences and so on. Russia's largest bank, Sputterbank, has confirmed today that it hired the consultancy of Tony Podesta, the elder brother of John Podesta, who chaired Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign for lobbying its interests in the United States and proactively seeking the removal of various Obama-era sanctions. Huh. So Russian influence over the election. Well, the brother of the guy who chaired Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign was hired by Russia's largest bank, to lobby for its interests in the United States. Do you think that um, the brother of the chairman of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign might have been able to get through to his brother and ask him for a favor or two, theoretically? But you see, they're very, very concerned about Russian influences on the American election and electoral process. <gasps> it's just shocking, don't you know? <laughs> right, so yeah, absolutely. And and this is, you know, in the I've just I'm just finishing up the... Well, I finished the first draft, just working on the second draft of my book, The Art of the Argument. And I'm, you know, I've got a, a big section ripping up sophist, but I also wanted to sort of say where sophistry comes from. Sophistry comes from the absence of reason. If you don't know how to reason, what do you have to do? You pick a team based on emotions, and then you just blind yourself to anything that goes against that team's narrative. Right? That, that's where this stuff comes from. You have a team, and the team that you're on holds your allegiance and you, you tell yourself that your team is the best. Like if you're in a football team or a soccer team or whatever, then you say, well, my team is the best and I want my team to win. You kind of understand. Like I remember when I was a kid, my friends and I used to go Saturday mornings for 10 pence, 10 pennies, I guess about a quarter. Uh, we used to go and watch a bunch of cartoons and usually one short movie in a theater near where I grew up in near Crystal Palace in uh, in London. And the first sports movie I watched was about, you know, the the plucky underdogs in, um, I think it was a soccer game and, and so on. I don't know. This is a very vague thing, but this was around 1975, 1976. No, actually. Yeah, 1974, 1975 or something like that. If anyone knows, it's a short film. I think it was black and white. Anyway. Let me know. Also, by the way, since I'm talking to the Borg brain, when I was a kid, I also watched a movie. I think it was again shot in black and white about a fight, a sword fight in, in Scotland uh, in the Middle Ages. And it was one of these things that was deeply shocking to me because I'd seen a whole bunch of war films. But you know where it's like the cowboys and Indians films when you grow up and the, you know, the, the Indians, they get shot and they just kind of jump off. There's no blood spraying. There's none of this Saving Private Ryan gallons of red thing, but they just kind of jump off and it looks all very clean and clinical. I remember watching this movie. It was in a, it was playing in a, um, in a library and it was a sword fight. And like 
guys got stabbed and they were like writhing around on the ground and it took them like hours to die and they just kept going and this guy's still alive and he's you know <clears throat> coughing up all this blood and i just remember thinking oh my god war is like vicious and brutal and ugly and gross and if anybody knows of that film please <laughs> please let me know uh, i would like to watch it again and and uh, see what it, it's like 40 plus years later anyway for for me but um i remember watching this sports film the plucky underdogs who trained and became very good and of course you root for them because they're the kids you know they're the kids you see interacting they're the kids you find out about their home lives and the other kids are just these blanks you know just these these faces and usually you know mean ugly faces you know the mean guy in uh karate kid and so naturally you end up rooting for the underdogs who are going to win or whatever the mighty ducks or whatever they were i mean that's a skating film but you know what i mean but it, it became very clear to me, like I was watching it, and just on the way out, I remember thinking, yeah, okay, but if the camera had been on the other side of the field, then I'd just be cheering for those kids, because those kids have their story, and those kids have their history, and those kids want to win. And so, you know, if, if, you, if you follow one side of the sports team, then you want them to win. And if you follow the other side of the sports team, you want them to win. There's no morals particularly involved in it. Not only because usually the sides are morally equal, it's very rare that you have the evil team versus the virtuous team, but also it's sports. It's not a moral engagement. The wins or the losses have nothing to do with ethics. So this is the way people operate in the absence of philosophy, in the absence of morals, in the absence of ethics, in the absence of reason and evidence. They pick a team, usually for emotional reasons, and then they support everything that supports their team and reject everything that denies their team. And the reason we're so good at this is that this is basically the essence of, of tribalism. So... And it disappoints me, to, to be honest, because I, I like to think that people inherently change their views when presented with new information, but that's not how it plays out. Like, if I can... Like, before before Brexit, I was a bit of a leftist, to be honest. Um, And it was actually one of your videos that made me vote the way I did. And really? changed my viewpoint. How nice. Yeah. Um, I got a letter through the post. I think it was off Richard Branson. And he was like, you know, vote Remain. It's going to be great, lads. And I was like, yeah, I might vote Remain, you know. And um, the missus was like, well, you know, look into it. So I did. And I voted leave. And Richard Branson? Was, yeah, he was marketing, you know, for Virgin as a, as a businessman. He was saying like, you know, everyone has to vote Remain. Why, why was he... I don't know much about Richard Branson other than the fact that he looks like a very gay pirate. But why... Why would he care? I mean, what was he? Is he some globalist guy? And don't even get me started on John Cleese. Oh, I'll, I'll do a rant about <laughs> that later. But sorry, go ahead. Steph, you might not know this, but Richard Branson was hanging out with Barack Obama right after he left the presidency. So yes, he's he's Mr. Globalist Man. No oh, is question. he? Okay, okay. So yes. um, the the whole the whole Brexit campaign was just a circus of politicians and celebrities getting together, like like the U.S. election. Hmm. So you had all these celebrities, all these businessmen coming out the woodwork, like Richard Branson and like you know the boss of Sainsbury's or whatever was involved. The guy who owns JCB was for Leave, so he was campaigning for Leave. Um, bosses were sending emails to their employers, employees saying, you know, make sure you vote Remain, otherwise you might as well not bother working here. Things like that. Nice. Um, but essentially, I was going to vote Remain because I was just a blind zombie to everything. I was just, I, I always voted bloody Labour. Well, it's also, um, you know, cohesion is good. Keeping the family together is good. It's like a divorce. That's bad. I mean, it's just that emotional stuff that you get, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll be friends. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah, friends. I can right. go and get some wine. Yeah, really uh, the, the people in Brussels are, are like my family because they care so yeah. much about me. 
But um, I watched Brexit the movie, and I watched one like a couple of your videos, Steph, and it was like, wow, you know, I didn't realize it was like this shit, you know. I I could like do nothing else for the rest of my life and still die a proud man because of a couple of things I've done in in this area. But I I really appreciate uh, hearing hearing it from the ground. Thanks. Yeah, so so that started my journey basically, and I'm at this stage now because I've always been a fan of science. Like empirical evidence is like, you know, that's what you need. It, empirical evidence, you know, absolute truth. Um, but you know, you most scientists don't don't do it that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, something has to be falsifiable for it to be scientific. Um, no, no. What I mean it, is it, that, um, sorry. Um, most scientists don't follow the scientific method. In in other words, there's an old saying in science that science advances one funeral at a time. Which which means uh, that there's there's all these people who believe in a particular paradigm, some new paradigm comes along and nobody changes their mind. They eventually just die and then the younger generation takes over and that's how science advances. Yeah, I can see that, to be honest. I can see that. And and this is government science, you understand. I mean it's not it's not the way things work in the free market it's just when government runs science you get all of this crap yeah because they have like financial investment yeah well you you know know, the free market makes you change you know i mean if i was an academic i could still be waffling on about a stateless society which you know is still my ideal and all of that but you know i kind of had to get out of the average tire because there were things that needed to be done in the world much more immediately in order for that other conversation to continue um but Mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the luxury of perfect consistency to ideology because I'm, I'm market-facing and things things need to be done. And uh, if Hillary Clinton had gotten in, uh, things wouldn't have been able to be done um, very long or very easily. And she would have harmed my friends. Yeah, I think we, we dodged a bullet there for sure. Okay. Um, and I know you had um, you had Cassie J on for the the Red Pill movie. Didn't you? you you had her on. I watched that yesterday. I came out. Um, that is another example, I think, of where you know there's these actual facts, empirical evidence that say these things. You know, proof that the patriarchy isn't what feminists think it is, um, and yet it's just ignored. You know, it's it 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 really. I struggle with it sometimes, and I wonder, like, what sort of dickhead <laughs> believes something? And then is told the opposite, shown data, and then goes, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's you know, I feel like it's, it is what it is. I feel it in me bones. But why, why do you think, I mean, I hate to use this sort of evolutionary explanation, but you did talk about science. Why mm. would we have evolved the capacity to have fidelity to reality over social acceptance? We're a social animal. We require social cooperation to survive to exist to to have children to all of that so why would we have evolved to champion empirical reality and objective reason over social acceptance when social acceptance is necessary for us to live yeah and i, th- I think you might have touched on that in, in one of your videos that rings a bell yeah and um, it kind of leads in with my second question as well which is a bit of a smaller one yeah um you know you, you don't want to get kicked out of the village basically you know you're right Right. It's kind of, it was like it's almost like a survival instinct to follow the group, you know. If you, if you're an outspoken thinker, I think like you said in the past, um, you know, like if you were seen as being treasonous because you had political ideas that didn't gel with the king or whatever, you know, it was uh, it was bad. And we saw it, you know, early early science. 
back in like early Renaissance times, you know, Galileo and stuff like that, they were really mistreated because it went against the church. It went against what people thought, what people reasoned. Um, and I, I just thought we, we'd, I thought we'd evolved past that, to be honest, you know. You know, with scientific evidence and, you know, data well, and but, statistics. But, but here's the thing, Richard. You're complaining that people don't change their beliefs according to reason and evidence. But the reason and evidence is that people don't change their beliefs according to reason and evidence, which you're rejecting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Actually, physician, yeah, heal right. thyself, if you know the saying. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I, that, that's right, yeah. I'm just, I've just proved myself a prick. No, no, not at all. You've just you've just proven that it's 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 difficult. You want, you want to believe thing. you want to believe that people uh, change their minds based on reason and evidence. And listen, Richard, I'm I'm totally there. I mean, I I spent even the first year of I don't even know how many years of my public intellectual life I spent on that basic idea, saying, "Well, no, 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 I have I have the facts, I have the reason, I have the evidence." So I understand that people might kick and scream a little bit, but they'll come around. And it's like, nope. <laughs> I had to like dig deeper and and try and find out the reasons why. So I I completely understand where you're coming from. And mm. I have been there and I occasionally drift back there myself still, but um uh, I don't think anyone ever went wrong under like I don't think every anyone ever went wrong underestimating the um the irrationality of the species at times. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a weird thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and, and what's thing. weird, of course, is that there's this double think that happens. People don't like to think that they're prejudiced, so they do like to think that their beliefs are reflecting reason and evidence, right? So they claim, yeah. uh, with the exception of religious people uh, and the exception of other kinds of people who have the word faith, and, you know, not to diss that in the moment, but they don't say it's objective scientific reason and evidence because of X, Y, and Z. They'll say there's indications and so on, but they won't generally claim that the existence of God is predicated on objective reason, science, and evidence. They'll say it's a matter of faith, right? It's revelation and so on. But most mm. people, particularly on the left, they don't usually have the word faith. They portray themselves as reason and evidence-based, right? Well, what was communism? Scientific materialism was considered to be science. And if you look at the social sciences, if you look at the way that the left portrays things, they portray their beliefs as being derived from reason and evidence, right? And so, like, as I was talking earlier, they say, well, women are half the population, therefore women should be half the high achievers in the top fields, right? But then when you look at the bell curve and you realize that there are far more men than women at the highest levels of intelligence, you'd, you'd think that they would then say, oh, okay, well, that's actually facts that would have to, have to help me adjust my thinking. But they don't. Even though the left doesn't have faith in the metaphysical sense with regards to a deity, they have faith with another deity called radical egalitarianism, which is also appeal to the least. And, and what that means is that anything which goes against their faith in radical egalitarianism they wish away they just wish it away they they magic it away because it interferes with their faith now their faith is predicated on resource transfers right and that is the big uh, this is the big challenge when you have a superstition based on resource transfers it's very very tough to battle uh, because you know the old saying goes it's very tough to make a man understand something when his entire income depends upon him not understanding that thing and so um, 
women get a lot of resources from the state, and the way they get those resources from the state is they say, well, uh, women and men are exactly the same, with all the same economic opportunities, all the same investment into work, and all the same intelligence. Therefore, any numerical discrepancies between men and women must be due to sexism, which is wrong, and therefore you need to fix it by taking resources from unjust sexist men and giving it to us, right? So the radical egalitarianism is a lever by which resources are taken away from men and given to women, because that's just so independent and modern and feminist to, to use the power of the state to take resources from men and, and give it to women. <laughs> anyway, so, so you have this radical egalitarianism, which is both an ideology and a methodology for transferring hundreds of billions of dollars from men to women, trillions of dollars worldwide. And mm -hmm. so if you're going to sort of oppose this radical egalitarianism and say, well, you know, there are gender differences in brain size, there's gender differences uh, in, in uh, neural connections, there's gender differences in availability uh, of individuals to the workforce because of women and kids and breastfeeding and pregnancy and so on, and there's differences in testosterone or aggression and so on. And, and so this explains everything, almost everything to do with, with outcomes. Uh, and uh, th 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 if, if people accept that, then they have to stop running to the government to get a whole bunch of free stuff. And asking people to support the revocation of a superstition that is enormously profitable to them is virtually impossible. It's the financial incentive is just follow the money. Like, for mm. forget the ideology. Just, just follow the money. The, 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 the the ideology is like the person who bumps into you so the pickpockets can steal your watch. If you chase after the person who bumped into you, you're not going to find the watch. And if you chase after the ideology without looking at Cue Bono, who benefits, who, who, where, follow the money, follow the money trail, and you'll find out mm. what the real motivation for the ideology is. Well, like in, um, like in the Red Pill movie, it says that men are, actually have a higher risk of dying of cancer than women have. Um, and that risk increases if you remove all gender-specific cancers. Mm. Um, it goes up to like 58% or something. Mm -hmm. And um, and yet breast cancer is the one that's massively funded. Sure. Not, not you know, prostate cancer. And it's it's one of them things where they're presented with information, right? The facts are, you know, more men are successful. You know, there's more men in the workforce in like higher-paying jobs or whatever. But the assumption as to the cause is they might as well have pulled out of a fucking book. It it's completely baseless. It's, it's, it's almost as if they've gone, what's the most, what's the biggest thing that we can pretend exists and we don't have to prove. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's no evidence for it because like the, like in the red pill movie, it, the society is built on the forced gender roles of both genders. I'm supposed to go out and, you know, protect my family uh, raise my my family um provide day or night you know rain or shine that's right. my job right um so with that as an evolutionary trait you would assume that there would be more men in those jobs because it's it's our our role if you know what i mean so the, they ascribe like the, the gender roles as uh, because of the patriarchy rather than the other way around the reason why that there is a male overabundance within the workforce and stuff is because of the gender roles it's not nefarious it's just the way it is this is how we've evolved you yeah. know but it has to be it has to be an evil thing it has to be you know a ghost in the ether well, no that's somewhere. because that, that's because it's profitable to portray it as an evil thing 
because then you can run to the government and say, well, you've got to do all these things to give us all these preferential bonuses, right? Mm. Right. So graduates of the Harvard Business School, right? Harvard Business School is the top business school in America. At least it was when I was younger. Maybe it still is or whatever, right? Um, so women who've graduated from the Harvard Business School, only 30% of them, sorry, 30% of them aren't even in the paid workforce. And wow. 44% of, uh, and only 56% of them work full time. Well, that was a waste of money. Well, yeah. <laughs> of course. Well, what right? a fucking waste. Of course. Now, if you are, I mean, if you're a, a manager, right, and, and you've got a young man and a young woman coming in to your uh, office, and they both have wedding rings on their fingers, right? So they're, bo- they're both married. You've got a young man and a young woman coming to your office, and they both want to have engineering jobs that are going to require a lot of travel, a lot of overtime. Um, who are you more likely to hire? Probably the bloke. Why? You'd probably be more willing to do, you know, the overtime and all that. Right. And and the woman may get My paid. guess, you know. And the yeah, woman I mean, if we're just, paid. you know, taking out all the variables, you know, that, that makes, you know, that makes the most sense. Right. Now, even if the woman says she doesn't want to have kids, she might change her mind. And this is nothing against women. I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that my mom was pregnant. <laughs> it's provided me a whole lot of oxygen consumption that otherwise would not have occurred in this particular room, which we never would have been built. But um, uh, now this is unfair, of course, to the women who are dedicated and and don't want to have kids or don't want to interrupt their work. And, and you know, I understand it. It's, it's, a, it's a drag. It's a drag. And so women don't want to face the negative perceptions of potential employers if they are married and, you know, want to have kids or, or whatever it is, right? I, I understand that. I understand that. And so, you know, what can you do in that situation? Well, of course, what one thing you're going to do is you're going to make it illegal to ask a woman if she wants to have kids. You're going to make it illegal to ask, you know, about her future plans with regards to, to any of that stuff. And you're going to make it illegal to discriminate against women uh, because they might want to have kids. And so what happens is then women get jobs that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. And then a lot of those women will end up having kids and leaving the workforce and so on. And I know women who are like this, women who were trained in technical fields who became full-time moms and so on. In which case society's, you know, got an educated mom, which is great. But, you know, we're, we're short one engineer or a mathematician or a computer programmer or whatever it is, right? It's just, it's just the reality um, that... Women like to have babies. Um, men like to become fathers. And you can't be a good mother and work full-time. Um, it, it, it's just the way it is. But if you follow the money, then you say, okay, well, if you talk about radical egalitarianism and then you say, well, fewer women are being hired into high-demand fields. Um, I mean, I, I know this. I know this. I manage this. Young men will work all night. And some young women will as well. But the moms and the dads, they had to leave. I, I don't I don't blame them. I'm, I'm glad. I didn't want them to stay. You've got children. You'll spend time with your children. But it's a reality that they're just less productive. And um, at least, you know, in the sort of high-tech field, in other areas, maybe, uh, maybe more so. And uh, I didn't discriminate in any way, shape, or form when it came to this stuff. Uh, but uh, I can understand the sort of economic arguments from an abstract sense. Uh, but um, yeah. uh, this is just the reality of... Um, you can't be in two places at the same time. Mm. 
Yeah, I agree. Because, Definitely. you know, there's this argument that, that comes up. It's like, well, you know, if there are fewer women at the highest level of the exact, it's got to be glass ceiling. It's got to be sexism, which is sexist. I mean, not only is it sexist against men by claiming that they're sexist against women in general, but also it's sexist against women. Look, the women who who make it to the top of the business profession, you know, like the Carly Fiorindis and so on, more power to them. I'm not sure she was that great a manager um, because HP lost a huge amount of money. But, you know, she worked hard. She started as a secretary. She ended up as head of the, the company. Fantastic. But why do they think that all women are like them? Do all women have to be that ambitious? It's the old thing. You mistake the world for yourself. Lots of women. And I've known these women and I've chatted with these women. They're like, yeah, I go to work, but I kind of want to be home. Like I go to work and I I enjoy working part-time so I can be home. I want to be home with my kids when they get home from school. I want to be available for them. I want to know what they're doing. I want to know who their friends are. I want to be involved in their lives, especially when they're teenagers so they don't go drifting off the path or something like that. Now, these women are voluntarily choosing to spend more time with their children rather than more time climbing the corporate ladder. Are you going to tell them that that's a bad decision, that that's a wrong decision? Well, if you're a workaholic who doesn't want to spend time with their kids in particular, or at least prefers work to her kids, or uh, you're just a workaholic and you've got to go work because you're compelled to do so for whatever dysfunction you have, well, that's your choice. Now, maybe you don't have kids, or maybe you just don't spend that much time with your kids, but who's to say whose choice is better? I mean, I think spending more time with your kids is generally a better idea. But the idea that, well, I sacrificed everything to climb the corporate ladder and other women didn't, and therefore those women need to have, you know, government remedies for their choices. It's like, no, um, they don't need government remedies for their choices because their choices are diff- just different. Exactly. I, and I, I thought at the end of the day it was all about women being able to choose. You know? Right. So that was the, I thought that was the original point. Right. Well, women are able to choose, but somehow they must all end up the same. Um, which yeah, is you've got to th- very be the same. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, Steph. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to close off here. Thanks, everyone, so much for your calls tonight. Most enjoyable. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat about deep and important issues with the planet as a whole. Please, please, please go by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out this most important conversation in this most critical juncture in the world. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Uh, Help give me the resources to finish up this book. It's very, very important. And I promise you it's going to be a great book and uh please use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash amazon and last but not least you can follow me on twitter at stefan molyneux have a great night everyone (laughs) i'm sorry i just rebooted for a moment there have a great night everyone thanks for the calls i'll talk to you soon